You better be listening to Slizoids or I must break you. Une simple goutte de ce liquide. Quatre hommes vont jouer leur vie au volant de ces camions. Et de la peur. Mario. Monsieur Jo. Et si les flics veulent me mettre ça sur le dos Mon ami Jacques Becker a retracé dans tous les détails une histoire vraie. La mienne. Ça s'est passé en 1947. À la prison de la santé. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Next week, we're talking even more procedural films about uh, men escaping hell, I guess. So just join that sleaze. That's right. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover as well. Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we've been doing for many years at this point. There's like 140 plus bonus uh, episodes as well as our bonus transmission series where we talk about new release genre films, which I'm pretty sure we're getting pretty close to 50 of at this point. Yeah. So there's like 200 Patreon episodes for anyone interested. Patreon.com slash Lizoids podcast. And uh, just to preface this because this is where we give those patrons their shout outs this is going to be one of the longest shout out sections we've <laughs> ever had to do so i apologize in advance uh, as people maybe heard on last week's uh, show jamie has been on tour with his band for a month and he's finally wrapped it up but we took a month off from the show and recorded a bunch of episodes in advance so you were getting sleazoids episodes every week during that time so if anyone was like hey why did i sign up for the patreon in july uh, and not get a shout out prepare yourselves you're all getting shout outs <laughs> right now it's all happening right now <laughs> So I'm going to try and do this actually pretty quickly today. Uh, we have Riley James who signed up for $5 a month. We had Taylor Burns. We had Aaron Crabtree. Uh, we had Kurtz. Uh, we had Sam Sal. We had Charlie Rohrer. Uh, we had John R. Uh, Rogers. We had Lashlin uh, uh, Saunders. We had Tony Wolf. We had Nadia Matthew Bolter, who signed up for an entire year of the podcast in advance. Once again, there's an annual tier for the show. If you like it enough and you want a little bit of a discounted rate monthly, you can subscribe for 12 months all at once. So thanks to Matthew for doing that. Uh, we had Noah Blankspoor uh, sign up at $5 a month. Steven Strother, uh, Sam DeChristopher. Lobster 2000, Justin Halley, uh, Barm, uh, sorry, <laughs> uh, Benjamin uh, Hurst. We had uh, Alheen, Maxi, St Sam Schick, uh, Dylan Usher, who signed up for $10 a month and will be joining us for the monthly virtual screenings we try to do at the last Thursday of any uh, given month. So thanks to Dylan for that. We had Nate Joseph sign up, Jane Griffin, uh, D. Ushru, uh, Joe the Lion, Lawson, nice. Sumler, Aaron uh, Stagoff, Aiden, Dylan Thompson, uh, Intero or Interabang. 
That sounds ominous, mm. actually. Samuel Langstone, Luke Gillespie, and believe it or not, we just uh, <laughs> we just hit August. <laughs> uh, Max, Chris, uh, Niels, uh, Tom, John, Dan. Wow, lots of first names going on this one. Good job, guys. Jackson Littlewood. That was easy to read out. Giant African Bullfrog. Uh, Riley Beller, uh, Ethan Sorrell, T, Jeremy, Alice, Riley, White, Glenn, Youngkind did 9-11. I didn't know that, <laughs> but it, I, I'm, 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 glad, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I know that. Also signed up for a year of the show, so that is like an approve for a year of the show. I Josh approves yeah, that message. I guess it's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, Benjamin Tran, Ben, uh, Andrew also signed up for an entire year of the show. Mike Riley, Ethan Johnson, uh, Cars, uh, Sonia Desse, Branson Reese, uh, friend nice. of the pod, an entire year of the show. Branson, you could have just asked me, bro, but I appreciate <laughs> the support anyway. Um, Thanks, Amelia buddy. Becking, um, Punches, uh, 2104. Wilt Garner, how is this still going? Ben Badger, Jasper Beagle, new new metal jacket. That's good, actually. Yeah. I like that one. Um, Michael Keane, uh, Daniel Cabo, Nick Ballas, Justin Shen, Claudius Kessobomer, uh, Harley Richard, Daniel O'Connell. We're getting so close. I'm so sorry. Uh, Jan Toddy. <laughs> Uh, who signed up for an entire year of the show. LP, who signed up for an entire year of the show. Wow, lots of annual subscribers over the last month. And uh, Antonio Sosa. And last but not least, Kua. Oh, and also Nathan F. There's one more who snuck in there as well. So, wow. oh my God. Uh, thanks yeah. so much. I mean, obviously, we took a month off. So that's also, you know, part of what's going into all of this. But that was all. We also had an exceptional uh, 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 month. So thanks yeah. so much to all of the new patrons. Hope you're all enjoying those bonus episodes. We really appreciate uh, that, that, that support. Yeah, thank um, you very much. I did want to say just I'm, a personal thank you to the audience because uh, I we had a goal in mind for this year and like i think it was about half of the year in we pretty much surpassed it so i'm just kind of overwhelmed by the support we so kind of blew all. past it yeah and we have like six months before we wanted to actually make it so yeah we're pretty happy <laughs> yeah so just thank you to everybody it's been awesome yeah, yeah. i'm never going band for band with you guys <laughs> yeah. never gonna do that <laughs> But, uh, uh, yeah, that's the one plug for the week, as always. Um, and uh, the other plug for the week is uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you guys are listening on either one of those platforms, make sure to give us a good old rating and review over there. It helps us climb the ranks and find new listeners, and we appreciate that support as well. And then the very last plug for the week is uh, merch. If you like the poster art that based out of Toronto horror artist Trevor Henderson did for our show, you can get that put on basically anything that you can think of. And you freaks thought of some weird shit. You guys have bought pillows. You guys have bought notebooks. Uh, you bought hoodies. You've just bought posters for your dorms or apartments or whatever. Uh, that link is in the description of this episode as well as over at sleazealwayspodcast.com if anyone was interested in that. Uh, but that is it uh, for the intro. Welcome back to another week. As always, I am your host, uh, Josh Lewis, and also joining me as always is my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. 
Welcome. Uh, I believe uh, two weeks ago would have been the last time uh, you folks, the uh, main feed listeners, would have heard from us when we would have actually had uh, the wonderful comedian and cartoonist Branson Reese, who just subscribed to the show That's like right. a god, um, <laughs> on uh, to uh, whip out the giant oversized mallets and invisible ink and sexy femme fatale drawings and break down the barrier between animation and live action uh, with us, where we talked about two particularly you know, kind of horny and violent and slapstick, um, you know, sort of, uh, animated and live action uh, films, very famously Robert Zemeckis's uh, uh, two noir technical achievement of merging the golden age of animation and the history of Hollywood noir films in Who Framed Roger Rabbit from 1988, starring uh, another god, Bob Hoskins, which was a childhood classic for me. I was very excited that we got to uh, finally cover on the show because, man, that movie gets funnier and darker as I've aged <laughs> yeah. into actually understanding that it's referencing movies like Chinatown and also the racist history of animation, which I would have known nothing about the first time that I watched it. I would have been like, the, the, the rabbit does a funny face. Yeah, it's kind of unbelievable how they just kind of get right to the threshold of what would uh, probably exceed what you can put in a children's film, but they, they just do it with such... Uh, uh, creativity. It's it's really really an amazing film, and I love just yeah, they, all they, the... they tried really hard to call that acid the final solution, and they were like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would that would have been wild. Um, but they they still do manage to to bring in a lot of like really crazy violence, and you know they cartoon it up with a, a little bit of lack of blood, but even you know the the infamous dip that looks like blood by the end of it and stuff. It's just they have a lot of really creative and cool effects that make it kind of an adult film, oddly enough. Yeah, and we paired that with Branson with Ralph Bakshi's uh, very blatant and flawed and compromised knockoff <laughs> of uh, Roger Rabbit Cool World from 1992 with Brad Pitt and Kim Basinger and, and Gabrielle Byrne, which was we we talked about uh, pretty at, at length with with Branson, who who really does love the film and have affection for the film, but is uh, very open about the fact that it is basically like half R-rated, horny, psychedelic Bakshi of the kind of stuff that you would maybe want to see from him yeah and then uh, maybe and basically half if not more than half just awful pg studio commercial notes trying to turn bakshi into something that you know would suit a uh, studio kids film in a way that just makes a really confusing and uh kind of idiotic yeah. <laughs> movie it, especially by the by the finale but there's there's definitely still some enjoyable stuff in it yeah it's one of those unfortunate films that it's a studio hired someone with a very unique vision and then didn't allow them to do that it's just a very strange thing when that happens, and unfortunately, that's kind of what happens with Cool World. <laughs> it is interesting, though, to watch uh, Brad Pitt do this very strange kind of pseudo-detective uh, performance, and then when Kim Basinger uh, turns into actual Kim Basinger and she's still trying to do the uh, the animated thing a little bit, it, it's, it's bizarre to watch. So um, there, there's some entertainment to be had, but yeah, it, it definitely falls short. Yeah, so you haven't heard that episode. That was over on the main feed two weeks ago. Go back and uh, go 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 check it out. Uh, but but last week over on the Patreon feed exclusively, we did a bit of a left turn and uh, we we wanted to you know uh, to get a get a little bit uh, spooky with it. We we wanted to talk um, some uh, two very cheap independently made uh, early 60s black and white psychological uh, horror films, uh, both that kind of had like carnival beach movie aesthetics a little bit to them and some sort of expressionist uh, style and atmosphere. We did Curtis Harrington's Night Tide from 1961, which is this very 
cat people inspired sort of like horror romance noir fable about Dennis Hopper as a horny sailor who falls in love with what he thinks might be a man eating mermaid. Uh, (laughs) It is actually like, you know, very, very, very good cheap movie. And uh, we paired it with uh, Herc Harvey's Carnival of Souls from 1962, which is very much gained a sort of like cult following over the last, uh, you know, essentially 60 years. Mm -hmm. But like it was made by a guy. It was the only feature film made by a guy who made like industrial educational videos for schools and shit like that. And he had $30,000 and a couple friends and he went and made a movie in Utah about a woman who survives a car accident and basically finds herself walking in a form of like zombie like purgatory. That's like part George Romero, a little David Lynch maybe took some inspiration from it and uh, very, very haunting and uh, great movie. Yeah, and specifically, it's the the location work in that when when they finally go to the um, I can't remember what they call it. It's like a giant, it's not a theater. It's kind of like a arena of some kind. I can't remember what they call it, but it's just it's one of the most like beautifully haunting abandoned places that I've seen on film, and they utilize it so well in that movie. So yeah, it's it's a it's a gorgeous movie. Yeah, so if you haven't heard uh, that episode, that was over last week exclusively over on the Patreon. But uh, setting us in for some sort of like moody black and white kind of 60s era. Uh, moving on to this week, we have a very special guest um, returning who hasn't been on the show actually in in, in a number of years. Uh, but we've been we've been meaning to get him back on. Uh, he is the the host of the uh, those good old fashioned values and get cynical podcasts, both podcasts that I've guested on before. Uh, Jamie and I both actually once talking about Ted, too, but also talking <laughs> yeah. about uh, the James Woods movie movie cop and uh, also uh, against my will talking about the nostalgia critics video review for Steven <laughs> Spielberg's AI, which was just horrendous <laughs> and horrifying. The, maybe the worst thing anyone's ever asked me to watch for a podcast. Oh, I bet. Uh, oh but, my God. Proud to have that honor. But that guest is Spencer Ryder. Spencer, how are you doing? Hey, I am great. Uh, it's good to finally be back on. Uh, like we said before, it has been three years, which is really, really upsetting. And just, you know, it's Considering great to feel old. how you pitched this episode to us right after we finished recording, it does feel like it took us a little bit of a while to <laughs> yeah. find a space to kind of plug this one in. Because last time we had him on, we were talking about uh, John Woo's Bullet in the Head and Wong Kar Wai's so Fallen Angels, which are still two of my you know, just favorite movies. And I think it's a really good episode of, of the show. So it's, we're very happy to, to, to have you back and, and also, yeah, to be, uh, you know, I should have known after we finished that episode that whatever you were going to pitch us was going to be very good movies. So, uh, what, what two films have you brought with you that you pitched us three years ago and you said, <laughs> and I was impressed you stuck to it. There are a lot of people who pitch us stuff. And then when the episode actually comes around, they're like, it's been like two years. I'm interested in other movies now. I've seen other things, but you stuck to this pairing. So this must be an important one for you. I uh, I actually will correct you. I think right when the episode was done, I pitched uh, the driver by uh, the Walter Hill movie. Oh, did you? Other I could have sworn it was this because I've had this one in the Excel document for a long, long time. I but think maybe I, you did adjust it. I changed it like a few months after because I saw you okay. guys were doing an episode on the driver, um, which you know would go well with both of these. I think so. You know, it's it's fine, but. Today we are talking about The Wages of Fear, the Clouseau movie um, that most of your audience probably knows was later remade or readapted since it's from book into late William Friedkin's Sorcerer. Oh, yeah. And 
We are also talking about, uh, I don't really speak French, and this is not a hard word, but it's still, it's still going to fuck me up somehow. <laughs> uh, Letro, which or the whole, which is what I will be calling it from now on yeah. to em- avoid embarrassing myself. Me too. Uh, it is a film by Jacques Becker, um, a French filmmaker who, as Josh pointed out on Letterboxd, was an assistant to Jean Renoir and had a just a huge career and this was his very very last film he fucking died i think before the film even premiered at can so yeah, he did, yeah. it was um it's his very very last these are two of my absolute favorite movies i think they're both in my top 10 of all time so uh you know i am more than happy to talk about these two films um and i paired them both together because they are part of a personal favorite micro genre of mine which I like to call the process thriller. Mm-hmm. And that is a thriller movie or some type of action or thriller movie where the process of undertaking a task becomes the tension itself. Like where, you know, in traditional Hitchcock fashion, for example, and that's not to besmirch Hitchcock. He's also one of the greats, but you know, you'd have like a concept and then there'd be like a lot of set pieces strung along and there'd be all these like little details that trickle in and the act of doing something would usually just be like one set piece, like Notorious has uh, the key set piece or something. Mm-hmm, or these right. are movies that are almost entirely based around accomplishing one task. One task. Other later examples, uh, Thief, the Michael Mann movie, I think is a mm. good example. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, a lot of procedurals um, of the you know uh, Zodiac variety could qualify. They could be considered a cousin to it, but... These are the high water marks of the genre where they have this complete purity about them where they just came up with an idea of a stressful task or a difficult task to complete and the entire movie is just that task. And while there's stuff like in the subtext and there's stuff on the sidelines, like the raw the red meat of what we're going to be talking about is just the very slow and arduous process of taking uh, nitroglycer- nitroglycerin across South America or uh, breaking out of a French prison. Hell yeah! Damn. Well, that was a that was a very good in, introduction because uh, <laughs> I I usually have to throw my own thing in here, but I was like, yeah, no, I would have thrown in uh, the term white knuckle in there. That's basically it. That's probably the only <laughs> other thing I would have added. Yeah, no, because <laughs> these are you know these are these are very very great, um, uh, impeccably crafted and 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 authentic too. I wanted to add too, where like both of them actually do come from you know uh, writers who did actually experience. Um, these if not these exact events these these places um and yes. new people who went through these exact experiences and in the case of the whole we'll talk about it at length probably uh one of the main actors in the film is actually the guy who did the the attempted prison break so it's it's yeah. you know the, these are these are uh, very, very authentic and, you know, to the minute detail, methodical and, you know, very much just observing uh, tasks uh, being being done. So I'm, I'm very excited to uh, jump into these. And that being said, I think we are going to jump into it here. Let's uh, let's kick things off with the wages of fear.
All right, we are talking The Wages of Fear, the 1953 uh, French thriller written and directed by Henri-Georges Clouseau, uh, starring legendary French actor Yves Montan uh, from, from Z, Le Circle Rouge, uh, Grand Prix, uh, which is, I think, actually the last time we talked about him, um, yeah. and uh, based on the 1950 French novel The Salary of Fear by Georges Arnaud, uh, which uh, was, was also adapted as... Spencer mentioned stateside in 1977 by director uh, William Friedkin, who recently uh, passed away. So I felt like worth kind of like, you know, uh, you know, uh, g- given given him a little bit of of, of the shout out here, because I know yeah. that we, we talked about a lot when we did our Sorcerer episode <laughs> that like there is a there is a long heated debate between the wages of fear heads and the sorcerer heads on, you know, <laughs> like everyone agrees the material is amazing. Um, and, and, and it's kind of a hard it's, to fuck up material, honestly, on some level, but they are. And, and, and as far as someone remaking a film that had already been adapted or whatever, they are very stylistically, um, uh, different. So mm, it was, you know, that, that's what I, that's what I kind of like to see in a remake. I hate when it's like, someone's just trying to like shot for shot, do it again or something yeah. like that. Oh yeah. Know? It's probably the best, uh, like top five best high concepts in Hollywood history. Um, just, you know, I mean, this one was outside of Hollywood, but just in movie history, generally, it's one of the best, just unfuck upable ideas. And honestly, I wish more directors had taken a crack at this material and put their own gloss on it. Like I'd love yeah, to someone see a Michael Mann. Let's line it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to see a Michael Mann wages of fear. I'd, you know, I'd love to see who, uh, who would make the first bad <laughs> wages of fear. I want to see Guy Ritchie's wages who's, of fear. Who, who, who's, who's bad enough to, you know, do it. Guillermo Let's del Toro. The, the, Michael Bay would the, be like a convoy. So he could have at least 48 explode before the two get like to the, <laughs> to the end <laughs> yeah the Guillermo del Toro's there would be like uh, I think like Michael Shannon would like start shooting at them while they're driving around <laughs> <laughs> yes yes um, but uh, yeah well I'm assuming throughout we'll probably uh, bring up Friedkin a couple times just to talk about some of the uh, differences because actually yeah. one really big one that watching Wages of Fear for the first time for this I actually was quite surprised at, at a, a change that he made other than maybe he thought that maybe he couldn't top it. So he's like, I got to do something else on that specific <laughs> task. <laughs> um, yeah. But, um, uh, this is directed by Henry Georges Clouseau, which is, this is, uh, he's a very well-known French director behind, uh, you know, this is probably maybe the film that he's the most famous for outside of, I guess, like Diabolique, which is mm-hmm. uh, a movie whose rights he actually famously uh, stole from Hitchcock, who wanted to make it. Uh, he also did the film uh, La Verite. And uh, we've we've actually talked about him once um, before for his film Le Corbeau from 1943. Mm-hmm. So if anyone wants to go back to that episode, we, we kind of went through the history of him a little bit where, you know, he, he's kind of a prickly guy. He was described as someone who even people who liked working with him kind of found him disagreeable and kind of short tempered and kind of just like a negative dude. (laughs) Um, and, and, uh, which is, you know, partially what people kind of psychoanalyze is, you know, kind of drew him to very dark kind of corrupt, um, subject matter. He had a very bleak, uh, sensibility to him and he had a pretty crazy life that included at one point being bedridden, uh, for five years in a sanatorium due to tuberculosis. Um, 
Wow. So he, he, he had a pretty rough, um, go of things and, um, he was, uh, uh, unable to escape France when the Germans eventually obviously occupied France. And, uh, he ended up working uh, for a production company called Continental where it, which is actually where he would make Corbeau and subsequently be charged with collaborating with the Nazis and actually banned from filmmaking for life, uh, for a while. They ended up sort of repealing that down to, I think like a two year, um, sentence, um, but yeah, Le, Le Corbeau, uh, partially is a film that actually got, uh, banned, um, in, in France because it was this, you know, very bitter, grim sort of allegorical fable of a town that is rocked by these like vicious poison pen letter smear campaigns to various sort of like upstanding members of, of the community, everything from like affairs to unlawful abortions. And, you know, he, he kind of depicted the hysteria and hypocrisy that kind of came from that situation and definitely in a very expressionist style when we did that episode we we found a lot of interviews with him where he was just talking so much about like fritz lang for example mm-hmm. like m from 1931 the mob frenzy the kids playing the reading of notes it's like all over uh, yeah. le, le corbeau as, as as yeah a little bit of shadow of a doubt uh, as as well um but yeah highly controversial film uh because it was technically made with nazi money during the french occupation um and uh you know, it was taken as a story designed to vilify the French for being um, uh, corrupt. And I don't think came out until like basically like the 1960s for um, a lot of people. And with distance, people kind of realized that it wasn't really an anti-informant story, which is, I think, what people kind of uh, took it as. And it became more of like a, uh, you know, a, you know, uh, sort of anti-occupation um, mm-hmm. d- depiction of being you know, the, the sort of paranoid effect of becoming a fearful and kind of insular community and um, the idea of kind of being watched and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I felt watching that film that definitely carries over to Wages of Fear and why I kind of wanted to bring it up is uh, his his very expert feel for tense and misanthropic um, atmosphere kind of simultaneously. Like he uses just about almost every visual tool he can in, in Le Corbeau from the shadowy lighting to these very deliberate framing and these canted angles, this Gothic architecture. I remember one particularly beautiful sequence in that was the funeral procession that eventually became like this claustrophobic manhunt as the secret like starts mm-hmm. to spread through like a literal crowd of people in real time. And you can almost feel like the whispering and the hostility growing and, 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 and everything like that. And it was one of those things where I kind of went, man, I eventually got to see what that guy did with sorcerer. Cause I just happened to <laughs> watch them in the reverse order. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I know it's probably not how I should have done it, but it was one of those things where I was like, man, I bet you that guy stylistically probably made a cool version too uh and uh i i I can confirm i i really loved this film yeah no i'm i'm the same way i mean the uh the the style is is unbelievable it was really cool honestly to watch these individual suspense sequences that i really already know i love in in sorcerer and just see them how they were originally done and how there's uh differences and there's honestly quite a few differences in this they kind of take the same um beats just in the sense of how the information is drawn out and even the pacing is very similar uh but when they go into the individual uh procedural stuff with the with the tasks that they do at each section um there are some pretty major differences in both the style and how they go about them uh yeah the the like the big set pieces in this are very like 
slowed down. I mean, obviously the most striking difference is that there's no music where, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Friedkin, he got Tangerine Dream. He very wisely yeah, I was say, has one of the most iconic 70s soundtracks, basically. Yeah. yeah. No, he blasted it everywhere. And in this one, um, there's almost no music whatsoever during the entire film. Um, just very, lots of silence, lots of creaking boards and rumbling engines and yeah. all of them. The focus is on just much more like minute problems. Like the biggest difference is the rotten bridge in the Friedkin version. You know, it's a giant fucking bridge in the rain. Yeah. The, the storm whole bridge and- is rocking and it's like it looks like it's happening in the bowels of hell. Yeah. And in this yeah, there's one, like a literal storm happening. I remember when we did that episode, we he had a different hydraulic system for the bridge and the truck so he could get them basically like moving and, and as exaggerated a motion as possible. Whereas like this is a more, you know, a little bit a little bit more of like a direct version of this and yeah. a little bit more, you know, it's like it's 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 a sun baked set piece. And, you know, it's uh it's it's very different. And the yeah, no, there's there's like it's just like a little corner they have to turn basically. Basically, with that, it's just got a little piece of wood on it and the, like the wood's a little bit rotten. And I mean, I'm not I'm not going to weigh in on the grand debate, but this is a really effective use of, you know, how can we make something that should not be suspenseful, like driving carefully and <laughs> cutting a corner like the most suspenseful thing in the world? And the solution is just to draw it out. So you see every single agonizing yeah. detail. Yeah, the um and the the lack of music with this, like with with Sorcerer, the 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 music almost creates, like you said, there's there's like a hellish atmosphere, and there's something almost otherworldly about their adventure that they go on, and and it just it seems like they're diving deeper and deeper into hell. With this, with the silence and just their conversations and the you know the tires hitting the dirt and everything like that, it just feels more. Um, I guess based in a reality that's more grounded, which can, in a sense, make it. I mean, you could argue that it makes it scarier, just because it's. Uh, um, it, it seems, it seems more lived in our world. It's not something that they're just going into a like a like an alternate realm or something like that. They, yeah, it's, it's not as stylistically exaggerated. There's yeah. none of that, um, that that sequence in Sorcerer when Roy Scheider is like driving through what looks like purple Mars, right. you know, and like, right. and, and, and the score is kicking in. Like there, there, there's something to be said about, um, you know, taking this story and just being like the tactile physical logistics of it are scary enough. Yes. You don't actually yes. need to emphasize and and you do find atmosphere just through the situation itself, which is because it's a fucking scary message. Again, it's, you know, again, we're going to mention this a couple times, but this is probably just like one of the greatest thriller concepts ever conceived. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, obviously part of that is George uh, Arnaud, um, who actually was an expatriate um, uh, living in uh, South America and who had, you know, lived or seen some version of, of, of these experiences and who came up with this you know, financially desperate men offered money to transport dangerous amounts of nitroglycerin through bumpy, irregular landscape and jungles and sort of like mountain passes, essentially a suicide mission. And mm. it's just, it's such like an, a, you know, an evocative concept. And yeah, the, the fact that Clouseau could go into it and be like, yeah, th- this could be done in more of a Howard Hoxian fashion than necessarily, yeah, the, you know, the most, uh, you know, the, the most like stylistically overwhelming and overpowering, um, experience. And that was maybe yeah. like the, 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 the biggest point of, you know, that, 
of, of difference for me was that like, I think I, I compared when we did sorcerer, I was like, Oh, treasure of Sierra Madre, 100% that is John Houston film. That is clearly in the thick of both of them because it's just such a similar plot in terms of like the desperate, filthy Humphrey Bogart getting a team of like distrusting hustlers together to go hunting gold in Mexico. And, you know, they're trying to fix this kind of like purgatorial existence, this sort of stasis that they are experiencing. And, you know, they run into the logistical obstacles and start, you know, becoming sweaty and going mad and hysterical. And so like that is just baked into both of these films. But this one and Spencer kind of clued me into it, too, and in his his review. But like it is just it is only angels have wings. Like it's just that's the movie. Like it's like one of the greatest hangout romances of of all time. Um, That just also happens to be this kind of like lockdown adventure movie where people are stuck on this remote island and the people are pilots and they basically every day they risk their lives for these cargo shipments that they fly and the the one thing I've always loved about Only Angels Have Wings is so much of it takes place in like the bar and it is just the characters being like you know the 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 bleak elements that are in that film are kind of like off screen it's like when a character leaves the bar to go fly the plane and they're like you know that guy maybe is not coming home to return and sing and dance with us tomorrow night. And like, Mm -hmm. that's kind of where that sort of bleakness kind of uh, settles in. Yeah. But this kind of does the reverse where it starts you in that. Here's the place that they all hang out. Here's the dancing. Here's the bars. Here's all of this. And then we go in the planes with them. We go on the drive with them into the dark shit. So like, that's just such a cool idea. And the key difference is, is that, you know, Howard Hawks's vision is very like it's both stoic and romantic. Like, you know, they're the only angels have wings really pivots off the Cary Grant character and how he's this, you know, guy who's dedicated to doing a job, doing a job well, and he doesn't want to let his feelings get in the way. And, you know, he refuses to mourn for any of his colleagues because that would get in the way of doing a task correctly. And right. uh, this what this movie's having absolutely fucking none of that. This is like much like how uh, Rio Bravo was like a response to High Noon, this uh, probably not directly, but this feels almost like an equivalent response to Only Angels Have Wings, which is that these people are fucking insane and awful, and all <laughs> these people are going to die horribly. And it's it's yeah no again it really does feel like uh, a Hawks film dug out if like if Hawks you know got really into Sartre or whatever, which he never would have. There's a great yeah, no, it, 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 it's literally the exact middle point between like Hawks's, you know, kind of more romantic hangout, more heroic kind of version of these kinds of characters. And we're pivoting our way towards the uh, Sam Peckinpah wild bunch, like death drive, filthy, you know, fatalism kind of aspect to it. Uh, just mm. instead of men, you know, sort of uh, exploding and drowning uh, in 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 oil. In the case here, it's like it would become slow motion gunfire, and yes. uh, and and that 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 kind of feels like the you know the the sense of just like grueling on the ground um, texture, but having this very you know broadly kind of primitive and existential almost fable like. Uh, quality to it as it kind of you know actually traps these characters in these situations and they realize the kind of you know the 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 situation that they're in and how you know absolutely you know terrifying it is to to really experience the level of kind of precarity and expendability that these like you know these these workers actually do under the uh, under the american 
um, yes. company. Yeah, and I, and I I also love the just the the introduction, the way that he introduces the community itself. Like right away, you can tell uh, most people are very poor and have to you know they're suffering through poverty every single day. Oh, I thought you were going to talk um, about the bug shot because it's the oh, same shot as the wild bunch. By the oh, way, it's literally yeah. the same shot. I was like, dude, Peck and Paw, you fucking just stole it, dude. Yeah. Like <laughs> the the little boy trapping the like little yeah. roaches in these like w- contraptions in the wet mud and scorching sun of this desert town called uh, La- Las Piedras. Yeah. Uh, um, with the and I was like, shirt man, and he's God. got no pants. And then like you go to <laughs> another uh, family and it seems like they just, they, you know, they're basically living in like a half of tents, essentially. And that's kind of how they introduce the, the community. And then they also introduce the characters that way, too. So I, I like that they show the desperation of the four characters that we're going to be um, that we're going to be following. But it doesn't stray away from how the rest of the people in that community are also living, if not possibly even worse than these desperate men at times. Um, and uh, I, I also like the difference here that you were just thrown into the town rather than I think with Sorcerer, he kind of does this 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 mass world uh, like of the four characters where he goes to each country that they belong in and kind of give a reason he does like why a globe trotting backstory yeah, right which where I, there's yeah, you know there's like there's like some I, spy shit and explosion shit and it's pretty sick but it's one of those things too where yeah it's it's uh it, it, it feels differently exciting where those characters i think are meant to have these backstories because they are meant to be i don't know you know they're they're meant to they're going to go on this sort of like men on a mission thing of exploitative, you know, dangerous labor, but it's meant to be more of like this almost like purgatorial punishment aspect where they have these past sins that they're almost kind of atoning for. And that there's like a grim fate kind of aspect and a more sort of like ironic bent to that, that I think Friedkin pushes. Yeah. Um, Whereas this really just wants to sink you into the leisurely atmosphere of, you know, these guys of, of these guys, the more mundane atmosphere of these guys being stuck here. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, in this in this movie, they're just already in hell when it starts. What does it even matter? Right. Like how they got there. Um, I yeah. also want to say the four characters all great introductions. You get you get a full hour to spend with them, which is fucking insane. But like yeah. none of that is even slightly boring. And I I like I cherish the fact that they're let you have so much time and patience before you even get to the trucks. Yeah, I, no, I, I, I kind of <laughs> liked finding out just who these guys were like in the moment. That's one thing uh, that these two films share is that it is kind of character through action. It is like you see decisions they make. You see that, you know, we're, we don't we don't actually get like a huge epic backstory. We t- we sometimes get like a line of dialogue or here like where we find out like the blonde German guy named Bimba played by Peter Van Eyck, like, you know, m- maybe has had like a father who was like killed by nazis or something like that mm-hmm. like i wasn't exactly sure what to what to make of of the backstory that he briefly brings up in his one of like one-to-one conversation but you, you have the frenchman mario played by yves montan who's this very charming handsome kind of like playboy type like sleeping with the local tavern girl linda played by vera Cluzo, who's actually henry georges uh, uh wife and also uh, who he named his production company after when he uh mm-hmm. 
<laughs> when he was uh, allowed to come back to France and make movies again <laughs> yeah. uh, because he because he didn't want to work for like, a you know, one of the, you know, sort of like more founded studios because obviously he didn't trust them like they kicked them out of the country. He's like, I kind of so this is actually kind of like a really big independent movie um, for for him and also obviously a huge financial success and he won the Palme d'Or and Golden Bear in the same year. This is like huge, really, really huge deal for him. But you also have this old hustler, ex-gangster Mr. Joe, played by Charles Vanel, um, who's the guy who like rolls into town on his last dollar in like a white suit and leaving whatever last situation he was fast and, you know, immediately pals around with Mario because he's the only other French guy and they relate to each other. And, uh, yeah. and he you comes know, off what, like really uh, kind of like confident and like he, he's got some almost wisdom from his from his years prior, uh, but then I like that it's kind of a he also flip. just looks wealthy, so everyone yes. immediately like bows to him and is like, dude, this guy's got money. He can pay for drinks. He can do, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then I like that they set these little character things up, and then as they go through the the process of taking the trucks and the nitroglycerin, a lot of things flip, or they just get those character traits kind of um, just just grow exponentially and become yeah usually more toxic, unfortunately, but. <laughs> Well, yeah, there's also Joe. more genuine friendship between these men too, right? Than By even the, the, the free yeah. conversion. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mario the, the, and Joe, yeah, they have they have this like, I mean, for starters, their their personalities definitely switch, which kind of informs the ending where mm-hmm. you know Joe starts out as this like kind of arrogant hothead. Like, there's a great scene where he just like gives someone he's having a bar fight with a loaded gun and says, "Fucking shoot me, asshole." <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, Mario is like the kind of more you don't more have cautious the guts. one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's the more cautious one. Like he, you know, he's obviously a hothead himself and he's fucking horrible to his wife, which is some great 1940s film misogyny right there. But (laughs) he is, you know, he's the more cautious and careful one when it starts out. Like he's very, very, he's a bit more deliberate. Like when Joe pulls that stun, he's like, dude, what the fuck is your problem? I was scared shitless. And he Mm. seems pretty nervous when the things, when things start. But the two also develop this, incredibly homoerotic friendship in the first uh, in the first hour of this movie. All of my notes, like almost all of them for the first hour were literally just like lines that felt like it's like the ending of double indemnity, just how peak 40s Hollywood homoeroticism where you've got uh, I got a date with a man and you got, you know, just the two of them blowing off Vera Clouseau just to be with each other. It's a very yeah. it's a very funny little um, you know, brotherly love type situation that explodes. Yeah, he, he, he literally he introduces him to his roommate to Mario, who's this big Italian man. Uh, or sorry, no, he's Mario, Luigi, Luigi. Mario and Luigi, the boys. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, Luigi spends his day sort of like laying cement, which we find out, you know, later, like most of the labor in this community is slowly killing him. Um, and, um, the relationship that he kind of forms there, he like replaces, uh, uh, Luigi with Joe. And at one point, even like, you know, they get his pants muddy and he's just like, Oh, that's fine, dude. Like you can have Luigi's pants. He's just changing (laughs) right in front of him. Just giving him his buddy's pants. And Luigi comes in. He's like, Hey dude, those are my nice pants. You can't, you can't just be given this random guy. Why do you like this guy so much? And it's just because of how he presents to, you know, have a sense of control and have a sense of urgency and mm-hmm. power. And he's going places. He's doing something. He he came on one of the mysterious planes, which is like the only thing that goes like in or out of this entire community. I, I, I like that they how they set up that this is just like 
It's so many of these characters just hanging around like cantinas and taverns and just like sweating and they're bored and they're getting annoyed and just like shitting on each other. And yeah. one dude's just like throwing rocks at dogs for yeah, like that's no a great reason. Intro. It's, it's wild to see <laughs> a lot of the, the community just like take take the abuse essentially from the the locals that have just kind of shown up and are working for the the southern oil company like i think at one point there's a guy that just starts d- doing the the dip the lip dip and spitting on the on the porch and oh, you know he's he, he's he's chewing baby yeah, chewing that tobacco. yeah and the, you know the guy stands <laughs> up but then he's just like uh it's too hot to fucking deal with this just <laughs> do whatever you want to do you know it just it seems like it's everybody's down on their luck even i mean even the workers themselves that are kind of taking advantage of the community but um it's it's still a hierarchy of course and you and i love how yeah, much time the, he spends on it yeah yes. they're, and they're all being called like tramps it's like the mirror universe hawks hangout section where instead of the relationships being comic or romantic they're like strangely antagonistic and mm-hmm. kind of cutthroat to yep. to one Poor another Bernardo. as they're all just yeah, they're all just like frustrated with the situation. There's no trains, there's no highways, the plane fare is too expensive, they it don't have wild. government IDs, and they, they can't get visas. There's no work except for the uh, the Southern Oil Company because, as they say, wherever there's oil, there's Americans, which is like a really pointed line, obviously, and actually part of why the film was not seen in the version that we're going to be talking about today uh, basically until the 1990s. It was cut by 35 to 40 minutes yeah. when it originally came out and played in the United States because they felt that it was too negative of a portrayal of American business interest and exploitation of local workers in Latin yeah, America. I, I imagine um, it's all of the scenes of uh, the, the American owners just going like, yeah, fucking kill him. Who cares? Uh, if they, yeah, the, if the, they don't, explode, don't call his mom driver. back. What the fuck? Like, yeah. who gives a shit? Just they let have, him die. They have, yeah. like, dialogue that just openly says things like, uh, well, we can't use the unionized workers because, you know, they're, they're unionized. There's, there's rules and regulations and whatever. So we'll just get one of the people that are desperate enough to, to do this. And if they die, well, we'll get another one. It's like, it's, yeah. it's, bl- it's blatant how just evil they make the, uh, the Southern oil company people. Yeah. So even though everyone, including American critics, like really loved the film, especially when it played the film festivals, by the time it actually came out, they were like, nah, we got, we got to punish this movie for being. <laughs> as politically clear-eyed about this unforgiving work in an unforgiving environment and the exploitation of local workers and, you know, get get paid basically nothing uh, so that, like, resources on their land can be extracted and then taken back to the United States. And, and then, of course, obviously suffering the violent consequences of all of the things that go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, the, 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 that's why, you know, Mario is kind of taken with this guy who comes on from one of the planes because there's an amazing shot early on that I loved of that plane. At, they actually got it in the shot flying overhead right past their conversation um, at, at one point that Mario's having with, like, the guy who, like, runs the cantina. And uh, that's the one that, you know, um, Joe is actually going to be coming in on. And it's filled with all these eccentric people from all walks of life fleeing whatever previous situation looking for options. Op- opportunity i love the guy who gets off the plane he just like unloads with a goat mm-hmm. i was like i don't know what he's doing but he's he's got a plan i wish i'm gonna luck. follow that guy <laughs> yeah mr joe bribing the customs guy who's just a dude like smoking a cigar at a wooden table at the landing strip and everything yeah. <laughs> there's like there's, there's, there's really, a lot um, of like really great like you know little uh, you know, sort of community touches in the details. Oh yeah, totally. And including a lot of the, like the darker stuff, like there's, there's stuff where people are just having, you know, 
just kind of casual conversations about their day or just looking for work or whatever. And in the background, you can see people just either sleeping or dead in the dirt. And you're not quite sure at times when you're looking. Um, and uh, yeah, he just, there's a, so much detail in this first 45 minutes to an hour just to establish the, the, the environment, the atmosphere that they live in and, and just how truly how desperate they are so that you can believe that someone would go out and do this job. <laughs> Yeah. And when they even have like the auditions for the job, again, it's like the flip on the Hoxian archetype. Like they are actively sabotaging each other mm -hmm. to get this gig. Like mm -hmm. they have this one Italian guy, they dangle fucking like some clothes in front of his eyes while he's auditioning for it. And he gets so upset that he doesn't get the gig. He hangs himself later in the film. Mm -hmm. And then they have another Another guy, um, the guy who threw rocks at a dog, um, Smurloff, uh, he gets selected for the gig, and uh, it's unqueer, unclear what exactly Joe did to secure the gig from Smurloff, but it doesn't seem very pretty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, and also, like, the showing at a certain point they they show the the victims of the the oil spill or the explosion that's that's happened and even after they've seen that like it doesn't deter them it's just the that desperation is 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 so just heavy that they that they're willing to take away a job that was probably going to kill them from someone else like they're it's just it's it's wild to watch um them just fight for basically scraps and scraps that are going to just deteriorate them <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. And, well, and, get, and, 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 and it's also like a competition on who has like the fortitude to pull it off that's why i like that scene yeah. that, that spencer mentioned when joe um is you know he he's kind of getting used to being a dude who's has a very physical presence in the room and is very commanding and he doesn't like music so like no one in the bars is allowed to play music when he's in there and there's a, a certain point where like luigi comes in and he's just gotten you know like a little bit more money he's gonna have a night out and he plugs the radio in he orders his champagne for the entire table and you know he's he's having a having a good night and it creates this altercation where it's like you know he's just trying to like have a drink and dance and sing and Joe gets so furious, he like rips the plug out and, uh, you know, they they get into a little bit of of an, an altercation, which results in them going up to each other's faces and, you know, um, Joe pulling out the gun and being like, you know, here pointed at me. And because and, I work because I, I think that uh, Luigi says like, oh, you like you're pretty confident when like you have that. And so then he gives it to him and is like, you know, now you take it. It's not just who has the gun. You also need the guts. And I, I just <laughs> I like the line that Luigi gets back where he's like, I'm not a murderer is is the difference. You know, like I'm just not willing to kill you for no reason. Like I kind of have a little bit of you know, solidarity with my fellow man who's kind of yeah. lacked in the situation. It's not like a pissing contest competition um, for me in, in the same way because Joe kind of understands it. Joe's also coded a lot older than most of the other characters. Yeah. He is meant to kind of see this life or death struggle struggle and the financial desperation as like he's a little bit more kind of like weary of it and kind of knows the game um, a, a little bit better with some of the conversations he also has with the um, guy who runs the oil company who like used to drive trucks with him or something like that. He keeps trying to use him as like a little bit of an in he's mm -hmm. like come on man you got a job for me you got something that i can do around here and he's like uh, he's like i don't know man you're you're like me you're kind of old man so leave this like dangerous shit up to the young kids you know you don't we yeah. don't need this shit anymore and he also beginning. says he also says like i can't you like i can't use you for anything like 
you know, this, the guy who's at the Southern Oil Company is like, yeah, we used to smuggle narcotics together. If I hire you for anything, they'll figure shit out. Like, no, I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but regardless, the company needs these guys because this struggle kind of gets, uh, you know, taken to the extremes when the, the oil field actually catches on fire and starts this massive fire that lights the, the natural land and mountains kind of like a flame, literally with the corrupt you know, greed of the company and leaves 13 corpses of, of workers behind. And obviously a lot of locals are really upset. They're talking about how, you know, it's always us who die. The gringos never die. It is, you know, we are always the ones who, who face this. And Joe is like, Oh, what is this? Like another revolution? Like, come on lady. Um, but, uh, all the scenes though, of the bosses in the aftermath are fucking wild. The way that they are like, when they turn down that call from the one injured boy's mom and they're like, hang up, we'll call her back if he dies, which he does like a scene later. (laughs) Better not make her fucking faint. Oh yeah, my God. <laughs> and or or that other dude who picks up the phone with the giant fire and black smoke like like blooming behind him right next to the guy in the full body cast. And he's like, the boss sends his regards oh, like it's, yeah, such, it's just such just an incredible image. And then and it reminds me of one of my favorite documentaries ever. The Werner Herzog one uh, oh. lessons in darkness, totally. um, which is the ones of the actual workers on an oil field and the cinematography like does actually make it look like, you know, they're on like some kind of alien planet, like turning this man made machinery into like hellfire coming out of the ground, uh, you know, from, from their steel and stuff. It's just, it's incredible. It's honestly wild how the images that he puts in sequence here, like having the rally about the people being sacrificed at work, the people are dying. They roll up with the 13 victims, uh, they have what you just said, where it's got the the smoking oil and the burn victim right next to it. And then I think immediately after that, they have uh, natives watching the oil burn, and then they just like insult them and kick they start them like out shuffling, of the area. shuffling them off. Like, They're like, "Get out of here! Like, what are you doing?" While the guys fucking, in suits are trying to like spray it with water and shit. Yeah, it's just it's it's absolutely wild. And then I think right after that, they have the discussion about you know what needs to be done about the explosion, and this is where the nitroglycerin comes into play. But in even that conversation is just just absolutely horrifying so there's just a, a lot of sequences in here before they actually get yeah, into that, that the comment that you talked about jamie where he was like uh no unions or families makes the workers like you know yeah. more expendable and like more valuable essentially because you know like there's no there's no family and no union to actually answer to if they die yep. so that actually makes them really really great for this job and they start riding the trucks with the megaphone like through the community being like two thousand dollars to any like third party outside contractor willing to drive a truck with a t- literally a ton of nitroglycerin <laughs> which will explode at the slightest nudge uh, o- o- over any kind of a crack in the road or you know any- anything like that and, and I like what? that the one of the American guys too who's like yeah it's too risky for me man like I was born in Texas so he's like I've seen lots of these missions and guys go on this shit and they do not like either they die and they didn't come back or they were not the same people like they went mm-hmm, through yeah. some crazy scary experience experience that literally like altered their brain chemistry or something like that yeah. you know i love yeah. the emphasis of the danger when they start to just initially load in the nitroglycerin because before this thing that one dude this, who almost trips yeah. with the fucking jerry can this adventure and, and you can see begins. you can see them all just like the clasp their hands together like jesus fucking christ we yeah. almost all die and it's just like <laughs> it's just like an extra too it's not even one of the main characters or anything and you you've almost yeah. witnessed the end of the film right there it's just yeah like that's how much fear is pumped into you right away 
It's almost like you can't even see the last two hours or the last hour and a half of this movie as a series of set pieces. It's really just one long <laughs> agonizing one, basically. Yes. There's all yes, these like totally. tiny little grace notes too. Like there's a part where the like the engine just almost doesn't start. Like it it's they like every single moment Clouseau can like goose you a little bit <laughs> and make you a little nervous about what's gonna happen. He does it. It's yeah, it's almost uh, it's just unrelenting. I remember just being like, okay, there's got to be some downtime now. There's got to be some downtime now. There isn't any fucking downtime until the oil makes it there, or no, the nitroglycerin makes it there, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's it's absolutely yeah, and, and 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 you know how bad it is, like right off the start, because everyone is already like this is already an incredibly dangerous place before the company is admitting that it's actually dangerous work, <laughs> and they're actually saying that yeah, this is essentially you know we're looking for candidates for for a suicide mission. Like if if you yeah. make it, you can afford a plane ticket out of here. If you don't, well. Yeah, you don't. Oh, you know, dead. like that's just, <laughs> that's that's just how it works. And you have like Linda like chasing in the trucks behind them, being like, "Don't go, you'll die. Like you'll all die." And all the men are competing so cutthroat, like for the position. I like when the one guy's driving the truck and they literally like throw something in front of him, so he fucks yeah. up and like stops really quickly. And they're ba- and, and it's basically like, "Ha, that guy doesn't have the job now." I'm like, "Great, that guy doesn't die." Like, yeah, he does. You, you really he screwed does. him. Well, and he, yeah, he does. He goes and kills himself because he needed the money that badly. Uh, yeah, but like, it's one of those cases where. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just I was just going to react, basically, and just say it's absolutely morbid <laughs> when you see that. And especially having that moment where Linda is uh, like praying in the garden, like, please don't let the the, the man that I love die in this incredible, like, insane adventure. And then sees adventure. the feet. And then sees oh, the feet. God. And she knows exactly oh. what that, it, like, in a sense, what that's coming from. And that's the same job that he's about to go on. And, and it's like, that's just how desperate they are. And yeah, it's it's great. I mean, great in a yeah. horrifying way. <laughs> and then yeah. we get on the road, and again, what? Yeah, they split happens- the men into groups of uh, gr- groups of two, and they split them up what by like thirty minutes because they were like, "Yeah, this is safer." And we'll flip the coin to see kind of like who, <laughs> who who gets to go first. Who who gets the uh, big blind, little blind is kind of like what they're like. Let's 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 set this up. I love like the company is so morbid about it they are so just like yeah you know you guys kind of know exactly what you're signing up for we held up a giant reward sign you guys kind of killed the one of you maybe killed another one to even get a position here yeah and uh you know now you guys are doing it one one of my uh one of the details between this and sorcerer that i thought was pretty funny um was obviously sorcerers called that because they uh they have that whole montage where they actually have to jerry rig like their own trucks they actually like weld them they make them right you know they they they, they're kind of part of the machinery uh this one the company just hands them shit and the truck just reads explosives in the place where it reads sorcerer and in, in the uh, in the other film it's literally just on the giant truck and you have joe like testing the tire pressure and the headlights and all of this and it's being wild like, too you know to have the 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 owner of the the company or at least the manager that's making these decisions uh he's actively even as they're getting into the truck and about to leave he's actively telling them to move faster so that it doesn't waste the company's money and you're like you already know the situation that they're in and you're still like let's go fucking van moose here we go come on yeah while it's claustrophobically framing them in the like flammable metal container yeah that and that horrible detail that joe doesn't even know how to work the contact in it Mm -hmm. when the engine doesn't go and you know mario has to literally be like dude you have to just you have to hit 
hit that. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and, and then they're on their way and we're observing every little bump and shake and Ooh. tire sinking into mud or, you know, the rattles and creaks of the metal and the engine and they're grimacing, you know, like sweat covered faces as they, they actually hit the road and encounter the, uh, series of, of obstacles. And for anyone who's seen sorcerer, many of the obstacles are, are quite, um, Similar, mm-hmm. but I do think that the movie actually does them in a you know a, a you know a, a, a different way. They did kind of approach the set pieces um, uh, slightly uh, yeah. uh, differently in terms yeah, of like, some of the actual suspense and dramatics of them. One, There's four big ones. Go ahead. Yeah, the the, the big one is the cor- uh, the corrugated road one. Yeah, yeah. The first big one is like the washboard, is what they call it. That's a great name for a for a road of death, the washboard, <laughs> where. They basically have to stay above 40 miles an hour. I'm not making this up. Like it's literally some speed shit they have to do. And they have <laughs> yeah, to they, stay they either above have to go it. really, really slowly and it takes a long time or they have to hit it already going 40 miles per hour and maintain that speed the whole time. Because if they hit yes. that speed, they are actually going over the bumps fast enough that they aren't vibrating as much. So either it's yeah. like do it in 10 minutes and go really fast or go really slow and have it take you like hours. Yes. Yep. And naturally what happens is, is that the ones who are up first, because, you know, it's funny, they fuck up the plan almost immediately because yeah. <laughs> Joe gets such bad nerves. Like it's, it's a very like for, for the main guy, it's, it's a very slow transfer. Like for Mario, he goes from someone who's kind of nervous and timid into the more foolhardy one and the more like courageous one. And Joe almost immediately like withers away and turns terrified. Yeah. So they actually stop and they have uh, Luigi and Bimba pass the two of them. Luigi and Bimba get on the road and uh, about like, I don't know, like four fifths of the way there. They like, they have to stop their car and you know, they slow down and it's like, all right, We've slowed down. We've got to take this for the rest for like four miles. And then naturally when Joe and Mario fucking hit the road, they're going not just like 40, they're doing like 50 because this is already at the point where Mario's like, I'm, I'm the fucking boss. I got this. And that it's one of the best sequences ever where they basically just, they have that moment where both of them, they can't do anything. One can't speed up. One can't slow down. And both you cut, just cut between both groups and both of them are like, well, this is just probably it right here. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely wild. I also like the, um, uh, like the whole idea when they do stop initially that at first they're kind of like, well, let's just, we'll just take a break and slow down and we'll go from there. Um, but there is some people in the group, I believe it might be Luigi where they almost have, he almost seems to have a sense of pride in his work and he doesn't seem as fearful as the rest of them. And he's, he's like, well, you know, you know, it's our job. We'll get there. We need to get there on time and faster. And I think it might be Mario that says, um, it's like, well, what is it? It's something like, what does it matter? You know, we're already on the road. We have one destination. We're going the same place. So do, do we really need to have this kind of like, uh, you know, we get it right in on time kind of mentality for this job? <laughs> um, yes. And it, and, it, and it results in this later down the road with the uh, like 20 minutes later or whatever when they're almost colliding. So, yeah, I think it's, it's a great setup and payoff. 
Yes. Yeah, and, and 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 the fact that Mario pushes it until he is like literally inches away from that vehicle. Yeah, they you start know, counting you, and, down and, or something to. It's like yeah, the, the the cutting back and forth of like the point of view shots, like attached to the outside of the mirrors, where you can see the trucks actually getting closer together with, with one another. Like they conceive that situation so well, and then yeah, like your your brain kind of puts the rest of the pieces together as mm-hmm. it's happening. It's like watching a slow motion train crash. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. that doesn't end up happening, which is why the the movie is filled with so much like set up set up set up set up set up and then just at the last minute kind of takes away that payoff and you know in in a way that is pretty consistently satisfying because it all plays as one set piece like yeah. even with now the, the the now infamous due to um you know uh, uh friedkin's version uh, as as well the big like suspension bridge sequence and this one it's a precipice like platform they need to reverse uh onto in order to make a yeah. hairpin uh turn essentially and the tire collapsing under the rotting wooden planks and I, I, I like to, um, you know, like L- Luigi and the uh, German guy hit at first Bimba and uh, Luigi just immediately like puts the stick underneath the wood under it and he just rolls over and he's out. And, you know, it's a little bit of a tense moment, but, you know, he doesn't actually get that close to the edge and he has someone there helping him the entire time when it's right. Mario and Joe's turn to pass and they're passing by like the graves of the dead workers who have like <laughs> were previously hauling iron. You could just see Joe's face just like sinking and then the giant signs with skulls on them and you know they're still going to basically cross and pull this move despite all of these you know signifiers that death is incoming and uh joe just becomes increasingly more cowardly in the face of the actual obstacles and he sees the weakness of the platform and of the rotting wood and you know he just starts like basically like freaking the fuck out and when he nearly falls off because mario is uh taking it as close to the edge of the platform as he can possibly take it to avoid the hole that the other guys left yeah uh joe takes that opportunity to literally go and like hide in the mountainside there's even like this great shot of him looking down at the truck just kind of like spying on it being like wow i wonder if mario can pull this off and mario has to fucking do that whole thing on himself reverse the his way to the edge and then start trying to make his way out and he can't roll over it because he's you know the tires are sinking in and he has to go and grab the branches himself and put the branches underneath his own tires so that he can kind of like roll over them and seeing that whole set piece and obviously also too the location work for this is incredible like that actual vista on the cliffside and everything and seeing you know mario framed against it like it really does you know set up the uh the 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 level of danger that you're actually experiencing too which is also why having that genius moment when he almost rolls over the side and he actually has to like stand over the side of it and look down briefly and everything like he gives you every visual cue that this is like disaster is is incoming and seeing mario kind of pull this job off by himself is like one of the you know one of the more impressive uh technical feats that one of the characters pulls off yeah one of the The, best uh, parts uh, something oh Oh, no, I was about to say that something I wanted to single out about this is that Clouseau managed to basically do the same set piece twice. Like he has first he has Luigi and yes. Bimba, and that one is really tense, too. Like there's a great little shot of the tires just like almost they're just like the tires just like slip a little bit off the wood or whatever. Like he just mm-hmm. there's so many great shots of tires just slightly fucking up in this movie. Yeah. And they have the, you know, the rotten wood that they discover. And it's like, oh, well, it's whatever. And then they they drive out. And it's still, it's really, really tense because of how precarious it is. And then it gets even worse when Mario and Joe have to do the same thing. And the whole, like, precipice, the whole wooden outreach just, like, collapses under him at the very end. So I got to, like, give props here where 
he does the whole set piece twice and (laughs) he makes it like scarier the second time it's tense both times that you watch it (laughs) yeah yeah his the use of like there's so much suspense and tension obviously but the small little bits of relief that he gives you just so he can throw you back into the suspense again is amazing like in this one sequence like we were talking about he's backing up and um and joe falls off and then he kind of like frantically looks for him and everything but then when he goes up and he uses the branches to get off of the platform he gets caught and it, on the uh, that wire that's that's holding up the platform so you're like okay oh, yeah, sweet he's right. gotten it through the mudslide he's not going to slide off the platform he's figured it out and then all of a sudden there's another thing another problem that you have to worry about and he's not even aware of this one so you just as an audience yeah, you're, you're, you're watching like, that suspension oh wiring like actually start to pull and give way yeah. as he's like just about to make it over just, like as the tires are just squeaking over the edge of everything like that like all of the very minute like methodical detail even in just like images and textures and you know little tiny you know sort of like technical pieces like another filmmaker made you know it it, it does really work as like a piece of clockwork engineering in terms of mm-hmm. you know both b- b- both the suspense and also technically as spencer was kind of putting it at the very beginning like actually following the process of thinking that these characters are making and decisions yeah, that and they're making and it, the, the, the way that it invites the audience to just have the same thought process as the characters like really gets you involved in that right yeah a hundred percent and and i do also like this is kind of the kind of the beginning of the um deterioration of the friendship between joe and mario because uh, I think this is right after he gets off the platform successfully, just in the nick of time, he starts driving off, and and Mario is literally like running after him, trying to get back into the truck or whatever. Um, well, yeah, because at this point he's just like, dude, like you may yeah, have yeah. like brains or whatever, and I maybe like respected you, but like you don't have the guts that you pretended to have and in it's the dangerous. civilized world. Yeah, and you unfortunately know? And with this and, job, and, 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 and you're not as valuable to me because what I'm gonna drive both of us and do the, all of these jobs by myself, and then right. what you're gonna get paid just as much as me. He's like, no, like fuck you, and 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 I love that Joe's like, bro, it's called the division of labor. Come on, man, like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> share the load. <laughs> All <laughs> oh, right, it's and I, I gotta correct myself. I did think I said Mario was running. I guess it's uh it's Joe and Mario's driving, I believe. But yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah. It's Mario a is moment. the yeah. Is it Mar- Mar- Mario is the one driving, and he's the one who's in like he's in the the, the young kid with with balls mode. I, yes. I think I think Joe is like you know I can't just recklessly like you know plunge into things like like you do anymore you know like right. I'm, I'm not a, a, a young kid and he's like no you're like a walking corpse you know like you're just <laughs> yeah. like not not useful at all you know no one and and, and that's like, just it too is he he starts thinking like the company right this guy is only as useful as he is for the task or the job yeah um which is uh you know like something both both films kind of share in 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 that way yeah that's that, true it's like the, know, it's, the friendship almost is forcefully destroyed just based on the job that they're doing really because it's like there's no room for a real relationship in this it's just try to survive and get through it and if you're not going to help then it's hard to see you as an as an equal in that moment i would imagine just because they're in such a desperate situation there's two little details i wanted to note and uh the first is is that there's like a great little mirror i believe it's in this scene when like early on when they're driving away in the truck vera clouseau's character like runs up to them and Um, you know, Mario just pushes her away, basically just shuts the door on her. Mm -hmm. And then I think during this scene, that's exactly what the exact same thing Mario does with Joe. Uh, There's a (laughs) lot of great like parallels between 
<laughs> there's a lot between Linda and Joe, which again heightens yeah. the homoerotic tension happening here. But also, uh, I just wanted to add that one thing that Joe says is that you drive, I feel the fear for you, basically. And it yeah. sounds just like the <laughs> rationalization of an insane person, and it is. But as we find out later, it's more accurate than either of them gave it credit for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because once they finish that set piece, they move on to the uh, blowing up of the giant boulder, which is different because in Sorcerer, we talked about it. That's the one where they, they do the uh, tree. And I remember we talked about it in that episode, too, that, uh, you know, uh, Friedkin was maybe a little bit too much on his shit in that one when he, like, flew in a legitimate arsonist and was like, so yeah, can awesome. you, like, really <laughs> blow this fucking shit up in front of all my actors and probably hurt them, you know? Like, Let's go. Um, That's directing, baby. <laughs> in, in, in this case... Uh, Luigi has to use a, uh, a metal rod to drill like a 30 inch hole into a giant boulder and uh, Bimba has to siphon uh, some nitroglycerin out of a jerry can to put it in which is also just like a horror like I wouldn't have wanted to be in that position of having to siphon it out of like a, <laughs> essentially like a gas can and yeah. have it drip into like a little like functionally like a canister and then slowly pour it into the boulder hole offer uh, after it's like it's really really tense uh, moment and this is one of the most more effective um scenes where I noticed the lack of music and also the uh, the sound design because Luigi's pounding on the stone kind of takes like this metronome effect yeah. as he's just hitting it over and over while we're even cutting away from him and going to like Bimba's eyes as he's like tensely pouring the liquid from the canister and into this and you can still hear the noises and everything so you know and, and, and also the cutting away to you know some of the characters chewing or tapping in anticipation mm -hmm. of the uh, you know the, the liquid finally reaching the center right before the explosion is actually um ab about to go off i i yeah. love that when they eventually light the fuse and they start like scrambling like roaches and it's like holy shit what if a piece of rock like hits one of the trucks yeah, they were like, like oh whoops we didn't <laughs> think that one through <laughs> we're just trying to get this job done yeah it, it does become very like you know, they're coming up with these really focused and great ideas to get through each situation, but there's always something that they don't think about because, you know, you got to move fast in this situation. So, um, yeah, I I love love they're those. running back to the trucks. They're like, can we move the trucks in time before this rock explodes? And like Luigi's trying to run back to try to like get the fuse out. And eventually they all just have to like grit their teeth and as the boulder the explodes. And as all the pieces of rock start like pelting the trucks, they're all just like, ah, yeah, one of the best <laughs> yeah. shots is I think it's I, it. It's not, I get, it's not Luigi because I think he's the one that runs, but it might be Joe. And it, it closes in on his face as he just has the most tense look as he's looking at the one container that they were using that probably has a little bit of nitroglycerin left. And there's just rocks not hitting it, but almost hitting it by like probably a couple inches or something like that. And it's just the, the tension that you can see in his face is unbelievable. Um, I also love the, the detail that, and I think we probably mentioned this in Sorcerer, but just how little nitroglycerin they need in order to ex like have the biggest explosion ever to destroy this 50 ton rock. And you know how much is still left in the trucks themselves. So it's just that yeah. it, you just get it into your brain. You're like, if this is just that this small little like, I don't know, table. Yeah, he loves feeding you information so that you can just be like, oh, man, that makes it so much worse yes. now that they're doing this. And, and you yeah. keep accumulating information in your in your mind that teaches you how to watch the coming set pieces. Right. You're like, oh, my God, that makes that so much worse. Or yes. even showing something to you twice so you know how what to pay attention to and what details to be like, oh, my God, that tire, it's going to go through that fucking piece 
piece of rotten wood or you know any mm-hmm. of that one of my favorites is uh that they all make it through the boulder set piece and it just as like a piece a stroke of random fate luigi and bimba the truck in front of them blows up it just explodes like miles in front of them while yes. uh, joe is casually rolling tobacco and both movies do this sequence really really well where they're yep. just like they they first feel and hear the blast with the tobacco just like being blown out of his hand and then they look up and they can see the pulverization of these two guys they just did a set piece to and bonded with through you know because both of these movies are kind of also bonding, you know, men bonding through work. And mm-hmm. that's a, a sequence where they actually felt a little celebratory about what they did. Like they pulled that off. They yeah, they're hugging the and goal, kissing the each job. other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a bad thing and to then, celebrate in this movie because something yeah, bad always happens afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. And just yeah. like that, that sense of relief after blowing up that rock is just in a sudden random instant. Those two guys are just exploded and that was it. Like we don't even experience it from their perspective. Yeah. We just see it in the distance and we're like, Oh, those are two dead guys now and, and that's ne- ne- their ex- their precarious existence was just snuffed out that's it you know the, that's the it. one oh go on jamie oh it's just uh and for me that's the big difference of uh like in this sequence it's like between sorcerer and and this one because sorcerer has a more they try to do a little and i like it i really like the way the sorcerer goes about it but they do a more personal thing where you're actually in the truck with them and he's reminiscing about his his wife i believe and he's just like it's nine o'clock in paris and like he's relating that to the time that you know where his wife is located and all of that and then he hits a rock and the thing just fucking explodes like it's just in the middle of them actually having a good heart to heart with each other um, and then it cuts to sh- uh, Scheider looking at the explosion and we you know as an audience we've seen it both times basically from both perspectives but yeah with this one just having the cold we see them go off in the distance and we don't even know as an audience member that that's the last time we're going to see them and you just get it from Mario and Joe that like there is a a bit of a an extra coldness to that that I found yeah, and the role reversal between the two men too right where sure. Joe goes yeah. like poor Luigi like he was like a friend to him because he mm-hmm. watched him pull off that amazing set piece where Mario just goes yeah whatever he took a chance and lost it yeah you there's know? a you just saw Luigi survive when he ran into the fucking the explosion or whatever <laughs> and you thought he was just dead on the ground for a second and you're like okay there's a relief there too he's alive there they made it through and then 10 minutes later just done God. There's a there's I mean for starters I, I I promised Josh I wouldn't get into a whole sorcerer versus wages debate you know qualitatively <laughs> you I was like respect Friedkin respect Friedkin <laughs> yeah no I was I was I, I was not interested it. all the comparisons I wanted to make here would be strictly academic the one place where I will plant my flag like pretty firmly in the in the camp for wages is that. I do think I like it a lot better that there's absolutely no warning or preamble to the to Bimba and Lu- Luigi's truck just exploding. Like yeah. the two of them have this very good conversation where uh, again there's a running theme of hubris in this movie, like a running theme of just you think you can tame the world around you and you can't. And Bimba has this very speech while he's shaving himself and he says like, you know, I was in a Nazi POW camp like nitroglycerin means nothing to me. Then you cut back to them and all of a sudden the explosion just happens. No idea Mm. what happened. You don't get like a rock hitting the truck. No one knows. They are not going to fucking know why the truck blew up. So why should you? Yeah. 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 And yeah. And and that's the thing too. You don't get a, a later scene too, where they like find the bodies and have some moment of like, you know, a, a, a spiritual goodbye or something like that. It's just, they're incinerated, they're gone, and, and you're never going to see them again. You, you don't even see the truck explode. You just see a, a big explosion in the distance. It's, 
one of the coldest things I've ever seen in a movie, honestly. <laughs> yeah, well, and 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 I I will say if if we're gonna be on on this note as well, there's there's one set piece for me where I will firmly I think land on the wages side, even though I absolutely mm. I mean if people can go back and listen, Jamie and I talk about Sorcerer. Fucking love that film. Yeah, uh, I think it's so a much about it that I that I love. There's stuff that it does differently that I think it does differently incredibly well. I think these yeah. are both really really masterful approaches to this. Agreed. There's one set piece in this that I was blown away by because it's so different from Sorcerer, and I was unspoiled and unprepared for this and basically this entire sequence because the mm. version in Sorcerer, if I, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I'm pretty sure it's like they run into some bandits and get into like a gunfight. Yeah, yeah, and uh, or and 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 in in this version, there's a fight between Joe and and Mario who basically you know they just they need to finish the mission out together and they have to um, go through a thick know, pool of oil. Yeah. yeah, and 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 Joe is obviously really upset that like, oh my god, that easily could have been us. This is such a fucked up thing, and I'm not willing to take risks. And and obviously that explosion has created a problem where there's now a crater on the path that they were taking, and the the explosion also punctured an oil pipeline. So that, that we've has been following the this whole time cr- too, which I like. Just that it, you've seen the image of the pipeline; it's kind of been their guide the whole time, and now it's the very yes. thing that's stopping them from their final. Yeah, no, yeah, ma- making making the oil like actually kind of the obstacle, and this is really, really obviously like it's a very great symbolism. But yeah. it, you know, it's also just logistically, it's also in, in crazy in terms of the imagery they get to come up with, where right. they have to drive through what looks like a lake of oil ray and the ray has never looked more evocative than it does in this pool of oil yeah it's and it's it it is probably my favorite sequence in 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 the film in terms of just like the pure imagery that it comes up because it's the closest he gets to doing something that is incredibly it it, like it is logistically you know accurate i guess you could say but it it is so like that's such a concept that no one else would you know there's no Mm -hmm. lake of oil that you would ever have to actually drive through except in the specific circumstances of these guys driving a ton of nitroglycerin right next to a pipeline that these guys need to follow behind like it's such a specific situation to get to this setting but once they get there and joe actually needs to guide mario through it and once he starts driving, they both agree he can't stop driving. Like, he, he'll he get stuck. If he wants to make it through the whole thing, he needs to maintain momentum or else he'll risk, risk getting stuck. Yep. So uh, Joe, at one point, gets stuck on a branch that's within the crater that he didn't see. And he's stuck there, and he can't move out of the way of the truck as Mario is moving. And as they both agreed, he can't stop. And the moment of Mario just seeing that he might run over this guy and kill this guy and he just decides to do it and the screams of joe as he's barely staying afloat above the oil and it looks like he's like drowning in tar and these actors really did perform this um you know like in 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 oil and stuff like it's fucking crazy and Um, what's wild too that one shot because i love that at first you can kind of see him swimming through it and, and you see kind of the sides of the oil and you can see a little bit of the truck and then as it gets deeper and deeper he just gets more and more covered to the point where it almost looks entirely just like oil even though Joe is right in the middle of the frame it's like the only thing that you can yep. see that has any uh, like uh, whiteness is his eyes when they open up every once in a while or at least try to it's it's just it, it's crazy just how 
disgusting. And, and Joe just feels. being like, you knew you were running me over and you went ahead because he doesn't die. The tires just crush and amputate his legs and yeah. you actually get Mario like pulling him out of the oil like he's pulling him out of water. Yeah. And fucking as leg. we slowly see more of his legs, man, like <laughs> his legs are fucking ripped in half underneath the fucking pants, man. It's like yeah, the bones it's, it's have horrible. Been and I love that Mario also says, hey, I hesitated. That's why I got stuck. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but he still did it anyway. Like, so I, I cared a little bit. I hesitated. That that almost makes it worse because it's like, well, if you knew you were going to get stuck then from hesitating, you should just should have fucking stopped then. But no, <laughs> yeah. he's like, I'm just going to fucking run your legs right the fuck over it. It's just like like it's such a completely inhuman decision and yeah. to have it accentuated by like the image of the pure like cruel steel machinery and oil just like ripping this man to pieces while he's screaming yeah. in the frame like it's fucked there's also a, <laughs> yeah. like a, a huge irony to the fact that mario would have never been able to figure out how to do it without joe i'm pretty sure joe is what who came up with the plan of how you would go about getting through this sludge he goes into the actual oil and like takes out tree branches and stuff uh, yeah. to try to 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 try to free up the the location. Yeah, even without legs, he helps them figure the trick on how to do it. After he's like, let's <laughs> yep. use the crowbars and hook them to the axles, and you know, and you know, there's there's a way to do that. But only after Mario is teasing him with water, he's like, I need water. He's like, I'll give you water if you tell me how to get out. Yeah, you know, like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's fucking. It's, oh my god. Yeah, no, the two so really crazy. do like need each other desperately. That's uh, again, yeah. like that's something the movie pains to illustrate is that. Joe's sheer terror as like frustrating as it is, is like is the only thing keeping them alive, basically. Yeah. And uh, there's also a great moment after the scene is done. He pulls Joe back into the truck and the two have this very cute embrace with each other in the car. They're like huddled up next to each other trying to get there. And uh, like uh, Mario relates a story about um, I forget what the specific thing was, but there's a line in it that kind of outlines the movie's whole existentialist, the philosophy where they're talking about looking beyond a fence and what, you know, we just wanted to look beyond the fence. And then Joe asked, yeah, they're, him, like, they're, yeah, they're, they're feeling nostalgic for uh, Paris and yeah. he's saying, Oh, I know, I know that street in Paris. There's like a tobacco shop there. There's a hardware store there. And he's trying to keep him awake by trying to get him to, you know, almost like a little fucking like children's riddle. He's like, yeah, what, what's the next shop? What's the next shop? And then there's a fence. And then when, after he gets to the fence, he keeps saying what's after the fence. And he just goes, nothing. Nothing. I, I, like he can't he, he can't remember or legitimately it's like he his brain is lying lot. on him or there's an empty lot or yeah exactly it's just yeah. it and just seeing mario react to like the, there's nothing at the end of this and like all that the actual life is is like the decisions kind of in the present in that moment and man that's yeah. just like such a you know like a like a dark moment for him the I moment also, that freezes my blood when i watch this movie is when joe's like final words as he lies dying down and like the very last thing he does before he just all the life drains out of him is he just screams there's nothing and then oh, just fucking yeah. collapses and it's like oh that's what you're talking about yeah, <laughs> yeah. and the, yeah. The, the, the vocal performance the way he screams that too is is incredibly just desperate and uh like it, he doesn't there's almost like a falsetto to it. His voice cracks a little bit. Like it's just you. He, he can see that he, he's dying. He can feel it. Um, and there's just such a a desperation to it. It's very sad. I also like the uh, the fade in that they do when he initially gets into the truck again, 
and it's I think it's at like the corner of the hood and it starts to drive and he just fades it in the same spot of the camera into night just to kind of emphasize how long they've been traveling and how lost they still are and you have uh, Joe beside Mario basically on his lap at this point just just dying um, it's, yeah, they're, uh, they're huddled together stained with the oil from the obviously from the actual going through the yeah, crater that they were doing and I love too that Mario at one point is like hey dude stop shaking man and he's like I'm not nitro like I'm good mm-hmm. like I'm not you know I'm not going to explode you man I'm just I'm a human who's dying and cold like yeah. and that's the thing too it, it is very just like I've said a few times now it's, it's very cold uh, compared to kind of that more surreal nightmare dreamscape thing that they do at the end of of sorcerer this one is just like go into the darkness of the woods and your only friend is dying in your lap um and well, yeah, and and you don't even like him because previously <laughs> yeah. you like 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 you you respected him <laughs> right. previously, and over the course of the journey, you've come to actually really dislike this guy versus like Luigi, who he was like actually previously friends with, and kind of showed himself, you know, to be a good worker on the uh, on 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 the job that they were doing. It was funny that him and Luigi kind of break up in the early scenes and actually kind of gradually learn to respect one another when they both realize that they're like you know willing to be young and 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 reckless and actually get this job done uh, mm-hmm. with with. with one another yeah and then when mario eventually actually makes his way um to the fire because you know the other two guys exploded and joe has died in the truck while you know they're they're making their way there and uh you know the the way that he cries and like turns the uh ignition key which cuts to the fire raging and the crew you know all there with the suits and the water and the dirt trying to contain Mm -hmm. it and everything like that and i love that the first thing that the fire crew does is uh you know uh rip the dude covered in oil a match for his cigarette they're like man this guy's come a long way he needs a fucking smoke (laughs) get him get get this guy fucking going as he's like stumbling almost like drunkenly and exhaustedly like towards the flames until he's like collapsing like he's Pulled off this Herculean task, and yeah. he's just like this hollowed-out, you know, man, kind of as a as as a as a result of it. And uh, I, I think we talked about it on the sorcerer thing too. It is always so funny that all of this is in the name of like the company, just like not losing some profits. Yeah, that it's like, that's hey, the is. workers can like clock in tomorrow now. Like that's great, you know. Like yeah, and like, <laughs> that's what it that's what it always is. Like like the fact that he arrives there and like nobody realizes the kind of journey that they've been on. <laughs> yeah, they're all. all they're all just happy to have their jobs back so that they have at least some security. But it it and you know in a sense you're happy for those workers because we've seen their desperate situation back in town but what well, after you've seen but this even at the beginning the it wasn't good to, they were oh, complaining no, no. about it there too like yeah, it was fucking no scary you know yeah, <laughs> yeah by no means um but it, it is there is just that dark irony of seeing people like just happy that they have now some type of resource even though it's still in this absolute hellscape of and filled with people that clearly don't care about you like as he collapses uh, as mario collapses the the same company uh, head leader guy is is like ah oh, he's just sound asleep like just like and almost with a smile on his face it's it's fucking it's just pure evil yeah um I now, do, now i have to i have to i have to ask all all like both of you 
uh, when it comes to an ending, both endings, Sorcerer Wages of Fear, both, both pretty bleak. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is there a, is, is there a preference to the, to, to the ending? Cause I love both of them. I do. But I both. was, I, I, I will say there's something about this one. I don't know if it is the age of the film maybe or something. I found it so grim that it actually kind of made me laugh. Okay. Whereas I, I did Sorcerer, I, I had the opposite where, I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's the score cluing me into the dark grim mood and maybe it's because it, like the the shot choice is so different where like Friedkin is like he goes back into the cantina and he's going to move on with his life and you know th- there's a sort of like cyclical fable like grimness to the idea of like the gangster who he was previously running away from finally finds him just as he actually survives the suicide mission and we get it in like the crane pulling out and we mm-hmm. hear the gunshot going off on the inside and you don't actually see it you know it's just like you know it's there's this you know there's there's a lot of mood and atmosphere to that a lot of slowness to that versus like this sequence is fucking crazy (laughs) of them giving Mario back the truck and he's like no I don't need a chauffeur I'm just gonna drive it myself and it's cross-cutting with the cantina being like, oh my God, like Linda's like, oh my God, you know, Mario's coming back. Everyone get the drinks going, get the dancing going. And it's cross-cutting literally between, it's the one piece of music in the film. It's the Blue Danube. Yeah, because, and and it's almost got like this waltz-like, you know, movement to it. And he is literally swerving back and forth with the steering wheel like a madman on his way back. You presume because, you know, he's like just really happy to be alive. And he's like, now I can drive like crazy because before I had to drive really slowly. I'm invincible now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm invincible. And the camera is like swerving and canting with the level of excitement as it's cross cutting between the dancing that he's going back to. And he just loses control, rolls off the side of the cliff and you get one of the sickest practical car crashes yeah. of the, I've probably seen of that truck just f- going down those mountains and the sirens going off and his bloody face. And it happens so fast. And it's such an animated buildup to it of yeah. his happy face and swerving back and forth that I... I actually did. I was, I, I kind of chuckled. I was like, Oh my God. But then obviously you think about it and you're, it's the same idea. It's like, you know, yeah, death yeah. is still coming for us all. And none of this work is pretty or heroic and everyone was still expendable and, and everything. So like it, it all makes sense to me, but tonally the way that this ending is handled is I was like, that's so ridiculously grim. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's just the juxtaposition of the two tones that he chooses to take before he delivers just, an insanely grim ending because um, I, I kind of had the same thing even in my notes I've realized as I was watching this the sequence I was saying stuff just like Linda's excited about Mario's return they're dancing and then I start like kind of catching on to what is going on here for this ending I'm like this seems yeah. strange <laughs> this has got to be leading somewhere I literally put, put that and I was just kind of like uh um, I felt as if knowing the ending of Sorcerer, having it be as, as grim it, as it is, and having this film pretty much relay the exact same emotions throughout, that the ending was going to have something like that. And I just, I guess I didn't expect the, the juxtaposition of just super happy dancing and, and upbeat music for the first time in two and a half hours to death, just blatant death yeah reckless death like it was it was and well, they even I, I, emphasized like, like, by honestly this feels like a way that wiley e. coyote would die like <laughs> yeah. i'm just saying well, like, yeah, totally. I, <laughs> so i do love the ending for sorcerer and i think like it's the mournful tone fits it a little better i will say though that knowing i love this ending the first time i saw sh- saw it i shouted mm-hmm. what the fuck at my tv like 20 <laughs> yeah, times I definitely yeah. did but i i um 
I I love the ending. And when I first saw it the first time, it's what like officially sealed the deal for me. Like, yes, this is it. This is a masterpiece. And I know I have many friends and many. It's a pretty controversial ending generally. Like it's either like, oh, that's perfect. Or what the hell? Where did that come from? So I was taking (laughs) notes the entire time looking for ways to bolster my thesis that this film is about hubris and the hubris, <laughs> like, you know, he thinks that he's won. He thinks that yeah. he has he's done all of this. Death. Yeah, no. And he hasn't, obviously. Again, it mirrors <laughs> uh, very, so very so, so your argument is like it's a Final Destination ending. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> it mirrors really nicely with the scene before uh, Bimba and Luigi bite it, where Bimba, again, shaving, mm-hmm. says, you know, I lived in a POW camp for three years. Nitroglycerin is nothing to me. Boom, there it goes. And this is the similar <laughs> yeah. thought process. Like, I just delivered a ton of nitroglycerin. A bunch of roads are nothing to me. And again, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it also, like, now that Joe's gone, his fear is gone. And it's sort of he's inherited Joe's recklessness. He's basically doing the same thing Joe did at the beginning of the movie where he hands the loaded gun and slaps the guy and says, come on, kill me. It's, mm-hmm. it's a very... it's. There's a lot of very almost literary like mirrors and reflections with it one at a time. And again, I think the intercutting it with the waltz that may or may not be in his head is with the driving, like the driving syncing up with the swaying. That's just so fucking sick. I love that so goddamn much. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I totally agree. I think the only thing that that just kind of felt strange to me, at least on this initial watch, was just the the tone, uh, just that, that quick cut to to the the most grim ending ever but i will say yeah. i think it really does fit it, uh, in a in a lot of ways uh, especially just given how you know kind of disrespectful uh mario seemed to be uh with linda even though linda's like head over heels with him and he didn't seem to have a lot of appreciation for even the small little things that he had in that in that community and in that scene he finally does kind of realize that he seems to be excited to see everybody at least it seems to uh imply that um he doesn't outright say it but it's heavily implied if you're cutting back to linda dancing and him swerving on the on the road um, and then for that to just be taken away the moment he realizes that it, it is kind of a, a good thing to have, uh, there, there is a, a real dark irony to that. And I think that it works really well with what they were setting up in the beginning. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't know. I may, I, I wouldn't mind even after this episode, just rewatching the last 10 minutes again to see that, that wild <laughs> change, just <laughs> to see how I feel about it again. I'd really do love it. I think it's great. Um, I guess yeah. I'm just, I'm more used to the, the, the the straightforwardness of of the ending of sorcerer um but i don't i gotta say this one it it surprised me and i did get a real visceral reaction from that ending so yeah Yeah. hard to say same same yeah well uh pivoting towards reductive uh rating round on this one it's probably clear from this discussion this one uh five for me yeah Um, pretty 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 uh easily honestly this is uh again for for me you know like you know, we're talking about a lot of masterpieces that, you know, stem that this is kind of coming from and also stem from it. Like, again, you know, having the connection to Howard Hawks as only angels have wings, which I think is something that Sorcerer doesn't really have, both having the Treasure of Sierra Madre connection and obviously both also having the the Wild Bunch connection. One of my favorite things about that is that I, I see so much of 
what Peck and Pod did uh, in in terms of that uh, you know that that fatalistic tone coming um, from from this, and then when Friedkin went to make Sorcerer, uh, we talked about it on that episode. Uh, he hired the uh, screenwriter of The Wild Bunch to actually update mm-hmm. Wages of Fear, essentially. So like these are all movies are all kind of in conversation with each other. In my opinion, they are all masterpieces. Um, and again. Uh, for 1953, I had to have imagined this was like a rollicking fucking blockbuster of like a <laughs> French film that's playing a film festival. I couldn't even imagine being at like fucking the Cannes Film Festival in 1953 and seeing, you know, this beside, you know, you know, one of the like art dramas that came out this year. You would have been like you would have been, you know, levitating. Um, yeah. It's just uh, still uh, among the bleakest, most like expertly, you know, sort of crafted visions of what it you know probably would feel like to live inside the levels of precarity and expendability that you know these uh you know workers do um under these exploitative conditions in in latin america and and due to the american oil companies and everything like that so i think it like it's, it's very politically clear-eyed it's very mm-hmm. incredibly um made in terms of just being a pure white knuckle procedural thriller and conceiving of situations and obstacles that are you know very clearly you know based in some kind Kind of reality, but you know, so logistically extreme and handled with such a blunt and direct effectiveness by Clouseau that they, yeah, they, they end up turning into something that feels grueling and existential. Like again, I was so shocked by that sequence where they have to drive through the crater of oil, and he literally like fucking amputates his fucking legs, choosing to kill him. So that it doesn't, you know, so that it benefits the company. It do- literally doesn't slow down the machinery that he is committed to and starting to get getting him thinking like the logic of the company and everything and, you know, testing the levels of psychology and friendship. I, I do think that this film actually has a lot more. Uh, conversation and friendship between the characters in a way that I find revealing like the Mario and Joe relationship is really really developed and the way that they switch positions of you know acting more filled with confidence and having guts versus you know the young guy who actually displays it when when the time comes up but also displays it to a pretty immoral level at the same time so yeah either way easy five for me Um, even going into it knowing the incredible, like physically arduous Mm -hmm. beats and scenes that were coming. Um, And even the fact that he does some of the sequences twice, it doesn't matter. Like the filmmaking is so effective. It so works um, that, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's anyone who could watch this and not like, you know, be fucking, you know, claws on their fucking seats. Like Jesus Christ, like what the fuck? Like I I can't watch another second of this, but at the same time you can't look away because it it, it teaches you to do that. So yeah, five for me, pretty easy, handily. Yeah, me me too. Uh, this was a very very easy five. It's 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 pretty awesome to have two movies tell the same story that I love, and they do it in different ways. Like these sequences are incredibly different from each other uh, compared to the freaking one. Um, and it was just it was an absolute treat to to go over it again and see a director do it just as well but differently. Um, I agree. I really like the Mario and Joe relationship and how they kind of switch personalities as the film goes on. And there's just more truth about how they actually uh, portray themselves versus who they actually are. I think that that's great. Um, I, I, I do agree that I think the the sequence, especially with the, the oil crater, is uh, honestly much better than the one in Sorcerer. And um, I think I think just speaks to overall what the theme of these 
uh, films are, the story is uh, better than the the bandit sequence. Uh, as much as I still do like it, but like having you know the the actual oil, the the actual product that they're uh, that they're they're helping produce it, stop them, and then you also see one of the the characters completely covered in it, consumed by it, and uh, eventually you know it kills him. Um, is I think I'll, it just speaks to the themes a lot better, and it's just an, a hell of a sequence. Well, and also having and it, a character like Mario choose to do that to him too. Like I yes, don't remember yes. a character in Sorcerer making a choice quite that disturbing and yeah, cruel. There, to I think agree. About. There is there is kind of even near the end more of a humanity a little bit. I, I there's there's a little bit of a difference I guess when like Sh- Sh- uh, Scheider shows up to the oil rig because I do remember him collapsing like entirely on his own and the first thing that the people grab is the 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 product instead of check on him and I did kind of like that <laughs> right, detail yeah. uh but but um but regardless I mean it, it, this thing is it's flawless. I think it's an incredible thriller. Uh, it's one of the best suspense movies ever made. Just like, just like Sorcerer, in my opinion. And I'm, I'm just happy to be in love with both of them. Um, I got to check out more of uh, uh, Henry George. How do you say is uh, George Clouseau? Henry George Clouseau. Yeah, because uh, I mean, he obviously had such a control, and also Armand uh, Thur- Thurard, incredibly good-looking movie. It, just the the black and white, the 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 fades from day to night as they're traveling. It's it's fantastic. So, yeah, five out of five. Yeah, yeah. Are no, I, five out of five for me too. I mean, I've said my piece here. I mean, the whole film looks, as you've said, incredibly beautiful. Uh, the restoration by Criterion also is just so fucking amazing. Like I'm used to movies from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, even when they get pristine 4K remasters, like still having some wear and tear on them. But this just looks as good as it did at the time. And I don't know. It's a film. It's one of the best just in terms of filmmaking, in terms of sound design. There's so many mm-hmm. superlatives you can confer onto it. It's really just one of the best movies ever made. It's one of the best thrillers ever made. And if I wanted to show someone a foreign black and white movie to prove that movies from that time can still be exciting and fun and terrifying. Absolutely. This would be near the top of the list. So yes, easy five for me. Hell yeah. All right. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for the wages of fear. We're going to be right back and we're going to be talking about the true or the whole. All right, we are back and we are talking Latrou, uh, aka The Hole, the 1960 French prison break thriller directed by Jacques Becker, uh, based on the 1957 uh, uh, novel called The Break by Jose Giovanni, uh, which itself was based on a real 1947 prison escape attempt. Um, and uh, this time, uh, starring a bunch of actors, uh, I was not. I'm mostly unfamiliar with. Um, They're mostly non-actors. Uh, yeah, yeah. most yeah. of them are non-actors, and some of them were ones who I think had careers maybe after the fact. Like, I know that Mark Michelle um, 
was uh, in Umbrellas of Cherbourg and Philip Leroy was in the night Porter and um, Michelle Constantine did a, ended up doing a bunch of seventies like Bronson movies at, at one point. But yeah, this is uh, definitely Becker's, uh, you know, sort of his approach to this was he definitely, he wanted it so authentic and grounded to the point of, he just wanted, you know, guys who actually had done prison time or, uh, in, in some of the cases here actually were part of this exact, um, uh, prison escape, uh, attempt. And this is our first time talking about Jacques Becker because, uh, as, uh, Spencer was kind of mentioning to us, uh, uh, sort of like off off recording there. Uh, not someone who's particularly well known in French filmmaking circles, which is you know you know a lot of people kind of look at, especially when they you know cinephiles first get into French uh, film. It's it's very director heavy. It's very auteur heavy. It's very you know here are the big names. There are my Truffauts. There are my Rivets. You know my Godards. You know and Becker is one of these guys who made films around the same time. Was really respected by a lot of these guys. And as we mentioned at the top of the show, he was even the assistant in the 1930s to Jean Renoir. So like, you know, and, and he made cameo appearances in some of his films, including the, the Grand Illusion, which is like his biggest movie. So it's like one of these things where like, it's interesting that this guy has kind of fallen under, you know, the radar for a lot of people, because I guess his filmography just doesn't have the kind of auteurist credentials that you would expect of many other of the really famous French filmmakers. And as a result, uh, the whole kind of feels like it got a little ignored in the, mm-hmm. you know, 1950s, 1960s, like French uh, interest in French filmmaking, especially because like, yeah, it's still oh, kind ahead. of ignored. It's like, I mean, I only, I think I only heard about this film because of some old letterbox mutual from 2017 I mean, it's part of the Criterion Collection, so it's not like this like deeply, deeply underseen classic or whatever. But it it has been slept on a lot. It doesn't have yeah. like the huge cult of personality, and it's really ripe for rediscovery. It's one of those films that I mostly wanted to talk about it because I do have a ton to say about A Wages of Fear, and I do have a ton to say about this, but I have a little less to say. I didn't even take any notes on this one. I was just kind of sitting in awe once again. But well, yeah, this is it like is a interesting top- like. Just because of some yeah. of the sequences, uh, it, at a certain point, you're like, and they're filing a bar, and you just yeah. watch that for like four minutes. And I don't mean that as an insult, it's fantastic. But it, yeah, taking notes at a certain point was just like, if I'm just doing kind of what they're doing on screen, <laughs> you can sit yeah. there for three minutes at a time, you know? Yeah, no. And it's, which is a shame because this is like, to me, and I almost never say this, but this to me is like a perfect movie. This is just this immaculate like nexus between you've got this very almost pulpy concept of a real world prison escape but then it's mashed with this documentary style almost like avant-garde level of procedural detail and the two Mm -hmm. just heighten each other uh the two just make each other more exciting like all the long shots of concrete being pummeled and bars being filed down just like they heighten the suspense and the tension and, uh, you know, yeah. it, that in turn makes the melodrama, like especially near the end, like that all the more ex- intense and emotional. It's been compared a lot to A Man Escaped. And like mm-hmm, a lot of Brisson definitely. films, it keeps its cards pretty close to its chest. And it's like, no, this is a kind of stone faced film about a process. And it's just showing things somewhat matter of factly. And then the sort of angle, you know, the emotional angle in Brisson's case, it's more the spiritual angle with a man escaped. But in this one, Mm -hmm. it's the more melodramatic angle just explodes at a few points. 
And mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's God. Like I really just cannot praise this film enough. I really do think that if we as cinephiles or whatever, we do our duty, this will be on the next sight and sound ballot because this is a film let's, that really, really needs some fucking more love than it has. Let's, mm-hmm. let's do it. And also there's a, there's a neat connection I read in um, reading up on Becker, by the way, because um, basically he was the son of this wealthy businessman in France. Um, he apparently didn't give a shit at all about his dad's business and basically just used his wealth to become friends with Jean Renoir. So that's why he was like, his assistant, like he just like bought sports cars with him and like went to like <laughs> concerts with him and shit like that basically. And so that's why he ended up becoming friends and being in the grand illusion a day in the country. Um, but his story got a bit more interesting reading about him during the outbreak of World War II, like for probably most French filmmakers. Um, he briefly served as a prisoner of war in occupied France for something like a year. So he actually did experience jail time. Um, and so that was partially, I think, why this kind of does come across to a lot of people as, you know, like the kind of personal film that he wanted to make at some point in his career. Um, and uh, but also when he got out of prison, um, he was that was when he decided to actually become a director. So he had not directed a film prior to being locked up in prison in World War II. Then he got out and decided to be, you know, he made everything from crime films to war films to comedies. He would basically make anything the French industry would let him make. And at the at around the same time, this is when Clouseau made Le Corbeau, which is why I kind of emphasized it in the in the last section a bit and was banned from filmmaking in France. And Becker was one of the people leading the charge to get Clouseau unbanned um, to be like, he shouldn't have like Corbeau was a great movie. He was, he's not a Nazi. Like we should actually bring him back and let him make movies again in France. So, you know, you know, there, there might be, you know, you know, Clouseau maybe owes a little bit to uh, a Becker on that one. Cause they're obviously a a bunch of filmmakers as, as well. But yeah, Becker was also friends and mentors uh, to uh, Jean-Pierre Melville, Godard, Truveau, all of these guys and his, and his career just like never took it. Yeah. There was articles you could find of like Godard or maybe it was, Truffaut calling him um like uh like uncle uncle Jacques or something <laughs> like that you know like it was one of those things where like they all these guys kind of knew this guy he was by the time the French new wave was rolling around he was like an old guard filmmaker who had been in the industry for a while and kind of gave them notes and all that kind of stuff and uh he uh he struggled in a series of commercial productions that, that you know as the you know people kind of write about apparently I haven't seen them. His, his heart wasn't in some of them in the 1950s and he wasn't having a great time making them. And so the whole was meant to be the thing he had a personal connection to. And, you know, you can tell that, you know, in, in terms of filmmaking, he, he it feels like his heart and soul is kind of in it. And yeah, he died two weeks before it eventually got uh, released and would give him the most acclaim of his entire career. Um, <laughs> Doesn't that is, always you know, happen? Kind of a little, <laughs> that does seem to happen. But it's one of those Jeez. things where it's like, man, I, I do wonder if he would have had another 10 to 20 years of like if the level of acclaim he would have got for this would have made, you know, maybe he would have been more of an auteurist staple if he got to keep making movies through the entire 60s and 70s. Yeah. You know? I don't know. Um, it's just one of those things that, you know, it, it felt like he kind of blew up with his personal film and, you know, didn't get to kind of take it any further than that. But yeah, have Spencer you seen any other uh, movies from him just out of curiosity? No, th- no, this is, this is my first one, but okay. I mean, this made me incredibly curious. I'm yeah. like, the craft is amazing. I'm I assuming there has to be other ones where seen... even the commercial craft's good. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen any either. And it's literally because I'm afraid to like, I love this movie so much <laughs> that I'm like, 
worried like i don't want to i don't want to like like if i don't like them i don't want to solely how much i love this film it's it's a very irrational <laughs> fear but it's been so long and i'm still like nope i've just got this one i just got this one this is all <laughs> this i need no i mean he's he, He's a, he, he's got some ones from the 50s here that I see a couple friends are definitely, you know, fight, fighting for. So I'm I'm going to go I'm definitely going to go down the rabbit hole. I'm going to go check them out after. But as as Spencer mentioned, like the definitely the point of reference here is Robert Bresson's um, A Man Escaped, which actually came out right in the middle between these two films in 1956 and is obviously, you know, the most famous example among cinephiles of, you know, a, you know, French prison escape movie like literally and also you know he does deploy some of Bresson's like ascetic techniques like this is a very stripped down very minimalist choice of location once again there's basically no score there's no credit sequence to this movie uh, use of non-actor is something Bresson used to do all of the time and as Spencer mentioned, where Bresson would kind of approach this more from a spiritual transcendence or kind of ab- abstraction kind of perspective, uh, this one is definitely more baked into the concrete material world. And yeah, even having know, the it, character it, it, introduce the film, going, you know, this is a true story. This is what happened, basically, beat for this beat. This is biographical, and, and it, it is the guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was a part of it. And to be, and it was, it's what's really interesting, just specifically on, uh, I guess he's he's uh, credited Jean, uh, Jean Carodi. Carodi. Uh, yeah, he was credited under a pseudonym yeah. because they were scared of like maybe you know his people past. <laughs> looking looking into his backstory or anything like that. Right. So, yeah. yeah. He has a very just natural screen presence, which was which was really cool. Like, He's got a great face. I kind of I forgot, liked him. I uh, thought he was a good actor. <laughs> yeah, I kind of forgot that he was the guy in the introduction as the film went on. And um, he he is he's got some great moments where he's got like some some close up lines and and I, yeah, I thought he was delivering. It's it was really cool gets, to find out that he's just just a ex prisoner. Yeah, no, he gets the best line in the entire movie, which we'll get to at the end. But mm-hmm. you know, something mm-hmm. that's very I I don't love the Brisson comparisons even though they're just right there like they're so easy mm-hmm. to make like they're they're just they're well, just, I mean I also Robert yeah, Brisson cinematographer for Oh Hazard Balthazar yeah. shot this movie as well right so it's one of those things yeah yeah no it's it's again it's like just a piece of like raw meat that you're leaving on the table and the dogs around like it's it's hard not to do but <laughs> the one one little difference um so Brisson's non-actors, like you can tell, and this isn't a knock against him, obviously, but like you can often tell in his movies that these are non-actors and these mm. are, they're being used as, you know, models essentially. And yeah. he's trying to make you think and make you like ponder. Uh, the non-actors here all give insanely good performances. And yeah. I was, I'm still shocked that they're not actors because all of them, these are the type of people street casters would fucking kill themselves to find because every single <laughs> yes. one of these guys could have been like a movie star or like at totally. least a character actor. It's insane how oh, yeah. my, good my, they my are. My girlfriend walked yeah. in while I was watching this at one point and she was like, dude, look at these beefcakes. Like, look at them. <laughs> like, they're, <laughs> they're all just hanging out, eating food, shirtless for some of it, you know? Like, it was yeah. like, it was one of those things where like they are all. You know, and and they are giving good performances of this kind of bonding experience, and mm-hmm. like you know the the glances they make when they're trying to kind of suss each other out and feel each other out, and you know who's gonna push the next person with the next tool, this kind of stuff. Like it's one of those things where this is dramatized, and the main you know other point of you know uh, where this diverges hugely from Bresson, in my opinion, is that you know like this has uh, a lot of 
you know, sort of like gritty immediacy that you would find more in like an American thriller. And the dramatics yeah. of it is more of an American thriller where like a Brasson character would be going through some kind of moral, uh, you know, sort of uh, spiritual sensation uh, through liberation and through light coming through a piece of, you know, concrete or something. This this is more of an example of the, the dramatics are more grounded in like these characters are making decisions. They are cooperating. They are doing a job. They have interests. They have goals. They have. And it's very direct and it's very tough and they're in a harsh environment. And this reminds me a lot more. And I think what kind of cribs a lot more from it. Um, which is basically the exact uh, center between a man escaped in this movie is the uh, Don Ziegel and Clint Eastwood escape from Alcatraz. Like oh, escape yeah, from yeah. Alcatraz seems to totally. be just like kind of whole ripping this right off. Like they even do the exact same strategies of like, you know, the guys having to duck the nightly guards and having to, you know, dig a hole through the prison and, you know, go, get a little bit further each night and see how far they can kind of push it. That kind of stuff. Like it's almost like exactly the same. And uh, the fact that this was like basically right down to its detail, because not only is the main or one of the main guys, basically one of the actual escapees or attempted escapees. Um, there's also two other consultants on the film who were the other parts of the crew who were off camera and making sure that they actually got the details of like the production design of the prison correct and that they got every detail of like the work that they're doing, which is why when you get to the actual work that you're, that they're doing and the labor that they're doing, it is like it's it like on, on, on some level. Yeah, you are watching minutes of a guy doing a mundane task that you wouldn't want to be doing. On the other hand, you're like, this is how it would fucking have to be done. Yeah. And it's kind of incredible to see that. Like there is uh, Spencer used at the very top of the show, the word purity. And that was exactly what I felt when I was uh, watching this. Like there is a sense of just like, wow, this is there's something amazing to being seeing something this authentic to the point that it almost does feel experimental or avant garde. And I, I was blown yeah. away by this. And yeah. the, I mean, the famous shot, the famous one is when the initial breakthrough, the, the concrete floor of the prison and yeah, I timed I, it four minutes, four, four minutes, minutes. <laughs> long take. Yeah. Eat your fucking it heart out. Alfonso Cuaron. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> they, um, no, I mean the reason why they let, they get away with it too is because it's such a fucking tense situation where yep. they have this window where they realize, okay, we have to do this, but if it F at any point, someone catches us, we're fucked. Like there's no way we could yeah. cover this up. There's no like <laughs> yep. contingency plans. We just got to be do no this way to clean it in time. Like we're going to start and we're just going to do it. And you know, and that's the sensation you get from the shot of you have to see this through. There's yes. no cutting away. There's no escape from it. It's like, no, you're in this shot until the job's done. You know, yes. that's yeah. it. <laughs> there's, um, there's something incredibly intriguing about watching the little progress that they make and then them having to constantly based on that little progress, they make reverse back so that you know they can cover it up in case a guard does come in and it's just interesting because the more and more the deeper and deeper that they go into the escape the more they actually have to revert back to in their plan um and he he focuses on that every single time whether it just be you know that like we were just talking about that four minute of the cement breaking and then they cover it back up or when they start to get into the tunnel and they have the whole sequence where they're, you know, getting the hinges off of the door, but then they have, they realize that they have to go back to the prisoners because the time is running out. And instead of just, you know, cutting back to the room when they go through the, the hole again or fading or something like that, they show them putting the hinges back on the door, going through the same situation they just went in the previous room, going through the tunnel again, going up, uh, putting the, yeah. the cardboard back over the hole. Like, 
and they do that every single time just to emphasize there is something how much satisfyingly work it takes. repetitive that works for my brain specifically yes, yes. where i'm just like man there's something about it just it it, it, it ticks boxes for me it makes me happy yeah. it accumulates <laughs> movies <detail. laughs> yeah yeah no and i also want to say like speaking of great log lines like the setup for this movie is just phenomenal too like yeah i was going to say we should we, i was going to say we should mention i guess for the, since this is the less popular one everyone knows the premise of wages of fear at this yeah. point but the, the there the, there is a premise for this that I do think is actually really fucking good. I, I agree. Where it's yeah. this guy, Claude Gaspard, played by Mark Michelle, who is this very polite upper class, um, you know, sort of like a n- new prisoner transfer being moved due to construction happening in his block and who were introduced to um, getting getting a lighter that has some sentimental value uh, to him taken away by his prison supervisors. But it's done in the set piece that for other another movie would be like a really tense and it would be where the American prison character would like assert his like male dominance and be like ha no it's my thing but but in this it's actually this very french very satisfied like everyone is kind of nice to one another and understanding about it just oh he just made a mistake don't worry we'll take care of this or there's no greedy guard who's like oh i'm gonna pocket that shit or so you know it's like it is just like this you know there's there's this overall politeness to it and friendliness to it and i i definitely thought it was like an odd detail which definitely makes its way through into the rest of the film because so much of this film is actually about friendship and social bonds and And deception of it versus Yeah. yeah like like presentation of it versus the real thing on on a certain level is maybe the key to the film yeah um but he's shown to his new room where he is immediately you know brought into the crew where he, there's this guy named Vosselin played by Raymond Munier uh Roland Darbant who is the guy actually Roland who is the actual attempted prison escapee um uh Gio uh Cassid played by Michelle Constantin and uh Manu uh played by Philip Leroy and all of these guys have a more stern joking kind of prickly relationship with the guards where they give them questions and pushback about you know like throwing a new guy into their room despite the lack of space or a mattress and you know giving them shit about the quality of the soup and the soup trolley and you know all these kinds of uh things and they've also there's a weird atmosphere among them they they want to do a lot of work because they can get paid in the french prison i guess to like uh do do labor and you know turn these cardboard uh, slabs into boxes which they've turned into like a little bit of a ritual that they do to make money so they can have nicer food and then they share all their food in their in in their place and, and I it's do funny like, that uh, I was just, oh, just real briefly the uh, I love the detail that it's kind of like they've become accustomed to it and one of them says that they're starting to like it a little bit like they're yes. enjoying the procedure yes. and it obviously it relates I mean, to that's, what they're that's the experience do. of the fucking movie yeah, man exactly. like oh man exactly. I'm beginning to like watching yeah. this this labor go down you know <laughs> yeah. um yeah, but one of the funniest things is just that, like, it doesn't actually seem like you know necessarily like the the worst you know lifestyle for a prisoner. Like, you yeah. know, again, it's not exaggerated to a ridiculous degree. Like, yeah, they're cramped in concrete. You know, there is something to be said about you know how the guards kind of treat them inhumanely or everything like that. And it's uh, mostly but the like fear by prison standards, like these guys are wearing normal outside clothes. They're drinking coffee and biscuits. You know, in 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 the morning, they they get paid for the work it's not like slave labor um, it's a you know, voluntary there's a, there's a couple, too yeah and it's yeah if, if you don't want to you can just you could just pass and say that you, you don't want the money um yeah it's but, mostly but, their fear of like where the future is going to lead and just that desperation because so i think a couple yeah, of them have jail. the risk of being dead i think there is a risk of i think two of them have they're like on death row technically or have a risk of being killed in some way i can't remember how they say it but um 
but yeah, the, the, I mean the the especially I, I compared know, to, does France have the death penalty? I, I think it, I think it's just uh, lifetime I, sentences that they're they're, oh. they're they're just worried about having to be stuck in being sentenced to like twenty or twenty five years or something like that. Got you, got yeah, you. Yeah, no, th- it's a it's a jail. I think not a prison where like they're all being held there because they're like accused of crimes and have charges against them. But most of them right. are waiting verdicts, so that's probably why it's not like sheer hell on earth basically like they're oh, just waiting think, yeah, yeah that's really where the fear is because everyone has just the potential of of that i guess and they're yeah. just kind of like they don't yeah. want to risk the time that they have versus the time that they could be end up in jail so i yeah yeah, yeah. But, but 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 one of my favorite concepts of this is that we don't know that when we first meet them for quite a while mm-hmm. like he just gets introduced to them in the room here's a bunch of guys and now he's hanging out with these guys and some of them are kind of nice and receptive to him some of them are a little weird to him he's picking up like a strange vibe that they you know they talk a bit like they don't entirely mean what they're saying or how friendly they are about their guests or he he feels immediately like an intruder and he doesn't totally understand why and when he leaves the room for a package of food coming from you know someone giving to him from the outside where we also watch the guard procedurally cut through every piece of fucking like meat and cheese and just and fucking uh soup and everything like they're fucking yep. looking for illegal shit snuck With into as it much detail and we find as, out like, eventually escape too like it's it really is exactly they, they cut in every single sausage every single piece of bread and they show every detail of that yes yeah and and, teaching and, you how to watch and we the find movie. out that they're all we find out that they're all working on an escape plan and basically have to either put it on pause while he's in the room, like effectively stomping it out because they don't know if they can trust him or they let him in on it and they hope he's into it and that he's not a rat. And like, that's like kind of like their dichotomy. I love that the one deciding factor is like how long his potential sentence is. So they have to like grill his story out of him where they're (laughs) like, you know how he, he slept with his wife's sister and his wife pulled a shotgun on him. And you know, he tried to like smack it out of her arms and it went off and hit her shoulder. And now she's claiming attempted first degree murder because you know, he's a little bit, you know, he comes from money, but not as much money as her. And so they're like, Oh dude, that's bad. Bad, man that's like 20 years hard labor that that you know you're gonna you need get to escape shit for that if she doesn't uh <laughs> you know and uh so then they're able to convince him you know yeah they were like yeah. we actually are going to dig our way out of this and we are just about to start and if you want in we'll let you in the same way that we're going to share everything in this room with you the way we're going to share the blankets the beds the food and there's actually one full long minute of them just like eating in silence together and yeah. just hanging out and just just bros. <laughs> yeah, how studio how come Studio Ghibli food looks so good? How come so yeah. Good? <laughs> <laughs> no, those that food does look pretty tasty though. They've got like like smoked sausage and like rice pudding and stuff. Like that that looks good as hell. Let me in jail. I want to eat some of that. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah, and then they it, that's that great moment like that could have been I don't know. They could have stretched. I mean, everything in this movie, this could have been like a nine hour long movie, but like they, that initial like log line or whatever gets resolved pretty quickly, although not truly resolved, but they figure out like, okay, this guy's on the level. We'll let him in. And then comes the agonizing four minute, four minute sequence of busting concrete. Although not without tons of little moments where a character will like procure an item and then you're kind of left wondering for like a few minutes what's what's he's doing like they have a little piece mm-hmm. of like mirror he smashes it and you're left wondering for like two minutes until he uses it as like a 
as like a little um, viewport out of the, yeah. the prison. Well, yeah, because yeah. the movie comes up with these great situations where we were watching someone and obviously the sort of the dramatics of what we're seeing visually is you're like, oh, why did he do that? And you're thinking you're trying to figure out like what he's going to do. But then they'll place really strategically like great moments of interrupting that process because like when he breaks that mirror he's about to start making what he's making but then suddenly they get room checked yeah and they we we get the dehumanizing experience of them rummaging in and throwing all their fucking shit around and at one point they have to throw all of the broken mirror shards into like a tablecloth and throw it into the toilet and then when they get sent outside the room they pull the uh, they actually pull the uh the loose that it goes all the way uh, down. And then the guards are like, Hey, who fucking did that? And they were like, yeah, I'm, I'm a jokester. I'm just joking out here. I'm just flushing the toilet. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've never done and, it from the outside but, before. <laughs> but meanwhile, we know that they were actually flushing down the broken mirror that the guards would have seen him and like, what the fuck are you using this for? And then after that scene is over is when we actually watch him lodge it to the toothbrush. And we realize that they're forming like a spy glass that they can poke through the little eye hole yeah. and they can check the directions for when guards are coming in like that, which then leads to throughout the entire film these great point of view shots from the perspective of the mirror almost like it's a rear view window in a car where they are constantly using it throughout to be like you know again the 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 metronome effect of them b- ripping through the floor and then cutting you know sometimes to the guy who is like you know, well, not in the one where it doesn't cut at all, but you know what I mean? In yeah. in other sequences where they're watching someone do something and they're basically like, sometimes we'll go back to just this guy's eye in the mirror just being like, oh my God, is there a guard yeah. who can hear this shit? But also these guards can't hear shit. I'll be honest. I don't <laughs> think these guards hear a single thing in this whole movie. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, it's covered up because there's construction going on in the jail. That's why they have to do it during the day, which heightens the tension yes. even further. Yeah, and I do yes. like the emphasis that, like, they do a lot of focus, obviously, on on the people that are, you know, filing down the bars and taking the hinges off and everything. But I do like that they emphasize, too, cutting back to the people that are just watching the guards, because that is truly equally as important. Because if they're, you know, if they're caught, that's it. It doesn't matter how deep they get. Um, and as much as it is just, like, you know, cut back to an eyeball and then the, the reflection of the guards, it's just a, it's a really important kind of... Uh, teamwork aspect that they that they let you know about throughout the entire thing and i think it's uh i think it's really great to emphasize yeah i mean the level of resourcefulness that is depicted in this in terms of like actual cooperation and work that they pull off i mean you can tell that it's every character is important because like because this guy lived it and he actually is like these are what people had to do under these conditions these are how clever they can kind of be one of my favorite Mm -hmm. ones was uh when they're trying to trade uh communications through the various cells and they're receiving packages from one another with rope and hand brooms that they stick their arms out the back of like the cell bars through the windows and they literally throw rope over and they were like hey dude in the middle cell can we use your arms so that we can (laughs) actually like create a little string that goes across from our cell to the next one yeah and then they use it like a little gondola to like send an actual package over to the guys over there yes and also like the the fact that they don't really give a lot of these characters too much of a background so it doesn't come off like you know one had a background in engineering or something like that it really just come off as just five average people that are in jail trying their best to come up with a solution to get out of it and it's it's, just simple ingenuity and resistance you know yeah (laughs) 
And it's cool, like you said, it's I love all the things where they just they break apart something and for sometimes like ten minutes at a time, you don't really know how they're gonna use it as a tool because they have to a lot of the time whether they're breaking something off or they have to form it into the tool that they're going to use, which also takes time. Um, it, it's just, it's amazing how much focus there is on l every little detail. Um, well, you can also you tell that's why they necessary. also gave it to Roland because Roland actually has made these things in, in his actual life. Oh, so right, like that, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's one of those things where like, the mix of trying to do this almost like arty slow cinema type, you know, process thing where like that could go wrong. I think mm -hmm. that there's a version of this movie where that actually does go wrong and you just kind of actually lose some of that tension. Yeah, but there's something monotonous. about it being so painstaking in its procedure, like watching an actual expert's hands you know, do the various things that they're doing, pull the wooden floor planks out, you and know, do the hammering the with like the makeshift wrench and everything. Yeah, there's well, something also about seeing the progress, like when you see a fully done wall, no damage, and then in the next three minutes, it's going to be completely destroyed and you're going to watch that in real time. There, There is something yeah. kind of fascinating about that. There's also like Becker's very smart in that all the scenes where he pulls like the slow cinema stuff is in scenes where there's like heightened danger basically. Yeah, totally. And it like it, yeah. it uh, again for your consideration maybe best scene in cinema history when they descend initially into the tunnels underneath and you just get these insane inky blacks as the candle what like lights up the square tunnels around mm -hmm. them. And then yeah. there's all these moments where they have to do this stuff, but they also have to keep a watch out for guards. Like there's a almost like comic moment where they like there's guards oh, yeah. patrolling around. They have to stand on top of each other to hide from them. Yeah, they almost have to do like the it's kids like on top of each other's yeah. shoulders under Little a trench coat. Yeah. Deal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> and again, like every single time they do this, they they make like they the reason why he's so exacting it's in part to show like the labor that's required for this, but it's also just because this is a stressful situation. And when you're in this, the seconds creep by like hours and yeah. it's yeah. always very smart that all of these very arduous, slow cinema things only happen in like in the tunnel itself. Yeah, that, that was actually a line I didn't bring up in Wages of Fear that I wanted to mention. There's actually a character who says that when they're waiting for the hour before they're about to go on their mission. He's like, man, an hour can feel like a long time. Yeah. yeah. You know, and and that's exactly what this does when it is taking this almost like a documentary approach to these characters. Like, yeah, breaking a hole in the floor and it takes on this very like hypnotic, tactile ritual quality where the exertion and effort and anxiety kind of all blend together kind of agonizingly and like that yeah. that's why the mundaneness does actually contribute to it because it is like it, it's effort you need this this isn't something you just you know it, it would be a worse movie to be like yeah and then they just you know they did a hole and it was really easy it's like no it's fucking hard work and you have to commit to it despite yeah. the fact of the danger it's going to put you through like in that un, that's why that unbroken long take of them getting that first hole through is like so incredible. But that, that same mentality even seeps in as you know, he doesn't do un, unbroken tapes uh, takes even stuff as simple mm -hmm. as like, you know, uh, figuring out how they're going to cover the hole using the giant pile of boxes or, you know, uh, turning some of the boxes into shapes of their sleeping bodies under the blankets, which then they yeah. use to line to make move at night so that during the guard peephole checks on their room, it can look like all of them are sleeping under their beds, but two of them are, are actually in the hole 
doing the underground tunnel passageway, which is maybe the most visually astonishing like section of, oh, of yeah, the film the, and where and and, and, and and where the camera actually starts to move a little bit more. Because like mm-hmm, when he's yep. first filing through that bar. The crazy fucking tilts he does in that, yeah. where it's like, and you're watching a close up of the file just going, and then he'll stop for a second because he thinks he hears something, and the tilt will move with his paranoid glance, yeah. and then back to his hands and actually doing the labor. And it's just the way the camera just gracefully starts moving with the logic and the mechanism of it, speeding up occasionally with the intensity or the riskiness of whatever move they're pulling and off. Like it's it, it's really well done. And then focusing too on the the file of the bar and how slow it takes and having constantly back and forth, like you said, with the tilt. But then they also do a fade to show you the progress that he's made. And a fade obviously implies like a significant amount of time. And he's only made like probably a quarter of an (laughs) inch of like space (laughs) that he's still filing down. Just emphasizes how much effort this takes. And I also like the... um, the, the scenes where, you know, as they progress deeper into the tunnels, um, there's more surprises because they don't exactly know the layout. They know a little bit, but they're not exactly sure where certain cement walls are. Um, and so even that sequence when they get back they, down in the, into the tunnel and then use that little lighter, there's this awesome uh, camera shot where they just follow them throughout into the darkness and eventually oh, yeah. they stumble the, onto the, the, a door. The tracking shot where you can't see what's like in front of them. Yeah, and it's like, you, and eventually they stumble onto a door, but for a while they're just walking and it feels like they're as aimlessly walking as we are. Like we just don't know where this is leading, but we're hoping it leads to the next uh, solution, you know. Well, yeah, um, and th- and there's even a part right before that where in the dirt he actually draws out a thing where he's like, so here's these areas and here's these areas, mm-hmm. and we're gonna walk these little tunnels and just hope we don't run into a person <laughs> and hope at some point we find where the sewer is or where it connects to. Yeah, he's like, that's all we're doing, and and like, yeah, it is, it is committing to walking through this like shadowy void like tunnel that you don't know what's on the other side and again that takes to to have the camera track through that is is creepy visually Mm -hmm. but also it does depict the experience of you are deciding to do that despite the fact that like everything in your being probably screams that's not a good idea you know these like underground tunnel passageways we don't know what's i mean we do know what's in here it's guards taking smoke breaks and (laughs) also you know probably looking for people to fuck with so like you know they're 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 in a bad uh, situation having to narrowly duck out of the way or some of them or walking these endless halls like they're like zelda levels or something looking for doors (laughs) (laughs) like you know there's there is there is something like uh you know and and even that long shot of the tunnel too where the only light is the candle and the architectural framing of it it almost looks like a shot out of like night of the hunter or something it's it's beautiful this uh this section of the movie The, the whole gradual descent into actually locating uh, the sewer, of course, by one of the real guys who actually did all of this. Like, so it's again, it's just like that's that's a thing that can't be like understated because it is just like so surreal to have the real guy there to walk you through. He's like, yeah. So back when I was in this other prison, I I this is what I did, and then I found this door and I took the hinges off and I marked my place so I knew how to get back. And or, yeah. you know, we had to crawl back up through the hole, shoving the dummies in the out of the bed before the guards guards get back in the morning, which is one of the most tense moments because they're like yeah we didn't have watches so we actually weren't paying attention to how long we were down there for which then results in them having to create like a makeshift
makeshift hourglass so they can actually mark the hours the next time they go down and actually, you know, make it up by morning and not get caught. Again, it's, there's some crazy detail like that. A great yeah. little scene where uh, one of the one of the prisoners, he like steals a pocket full of sand and you're like, why the fuck would you ever do that? And then <laughs> when you see what? And then you see it, you're like, oh, right. They're making a little they're making a little stopwatch or whatever or like a little hourglass. That's so sick. Yeah, yeah, no, again, yeah. so much of the movie is just this exacting process. And again, it's almost a sick joke that they get all the way down to the sewers and then there's a concrete wall and they have to tunnel around it. And they have to spend <laughs> days just tunneling around concrete. So yeah. after the digging yeah, the first hole, they got to dig the second hole. Yeah, yeah. I there And there are these, like, most of it is the procedural stuff. Um, and, I, and I love that. I do like that he sprinkles in a couple almost... They're not surreal by any means, but almost creepy moments. Like, there's one where it shows the close-up of a spider, and then it shows a guard's face, like, really close up. And you can't actually see his mouth, but he does this smile. And there's something about his his eyes and the glare that they do in the close-up that's, like, just creepy. And, like, he's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's I think showing the guards is kind of um, inhumane a little bit. I think he does something to the spider at the time. But just the way that he presents them in that shot is creepy as hell. <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely the presence they have. And one of the things mm -hmm. that I like is that, like, obviously, like, that's the kind of, you know, the broad force they represent. Yeah. Um, sort of, you know, to 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 the characters. But one of the details I actually kind of liked about this is um, like for what is a lot of non-actors, there's a lot of like kind of just like funny dialogue and conversational stuff that some mm -hmm. of them that they even have with the guards. Like I one of my. um <laughs> One of the sequences where it kind of clarified what the movie was doing to me a bit was when their faucet breaks and they need to like <laughs> waste a day calling guards, having plumbers um, mm -hmm. come come in uh, because there was some real personality to the dialogue when like that one guard comes in and he's just and it's a uh, geo who is like the guy who's you know kind of really really chill yeah <laughs> uh, and he's constantly he, he's the one who d doesn't want to work he just wants to like sleep all day and they some of the guards crack jokes about how he's like lazy and the one guy comes in and said that guy didn't commit suicide did he because geo's like hasn't acknowledged the guards existence in the room yet like he hasn't shown him respect yet and then he just leans over and he goes you know uh, we know better than that boss not when you're on duty you know like we, we kind of like you you know like yeah. i wouldn't do that to you and uh yeah there's just there's something about the way that they are doing that playfully and also like you know also doing it as a form of resistance a little bit of cool hand luke i guess you could say in 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 yeah. little moments like that um but then also it it like leans into some of the you know, the actual humane flaws of these characters, like when the plumbers steal their cigarettes and stamps. Um, <laughs> right. So they, 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 ca they call the head of the block to like bring them back in. And in typical French fashion, they just like slap <laughs> and spank the shit was, out of these guys to get gonna, their shit back. I was going to say, this is the most French the ass fighting of fight all time. <laughs> I've ever seen in my life. There's actually a shot where trip the him. guy <laughs> just slaps him back and forth. I think 10 times all in one shot. And it, I mean, I was howling. I thought it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen in a but, great but, way. But it, all, it also emphasizes the uh, the childishness of it, yeah, right? Because yeah. the, oh, the one definitely. guy goes, like, why would you do that? Like, we're going to break out in a couple days and have all the cigarettes and stamps we fucking want. <laughs> like, why would you draw attention to our room and bring the guards into our room? But it's like, yeah. it's a point of, you know, it, they were like, I, well, they broke a friendly social contract. Right. Yeah. And that's not right. You know, I, that they're not allowed. To, there's, a, there's a betrayal in the group. And it was one of those things where I was kind of like, it's interesting how much time 
the movie spending on this. And then you get to the very end of the movie and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, no, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a movie. It's a, almost like a subtle fake out since like so much, almost, I'd say like 90% of this movie by volume is just like hard labor and or like maybe these <laughs> men talking about the hard labor. And then the remaining 10%, the really only dramatic beats in the entire movie. Uh, the first one is Geo, who is the is a very charming, funny prisoner who is kind of like the Eeyore of the group, um, and he's always, you know, he's the most like deadpan or whatever. And he says, "I'm not escaping with you guys. Like, I'll I'll help you all out, but I'm not going to escape with you all because." If I run away, they'll go to my mom again and she will have a heart attack and die. So I'm just going to stay yeah. behind. And which is actually kind of adorable when when he says that. And also, <laughs> like, if we're talking when, by the time we do get to the end, like that is such the philosophical difference of the film is like, here's a guy who is like, yeah, I'll do the work. And I'm part of this social contract with all of you because I I like you all. And he's willing to do this insane amount of like hellish labor yep. and like not actually get anything out of it. Like he's not going to be escaping. He's just doing it purely for them. It's like a it's completely selfless act, which then makes it more harrowing. Like the scene when, you know, Gio is the one who's going down with uh, Roland at one point. And cause Gio is the one who almost gets crushed digging, right? Yeah, and no, and this dig him out. horrifying scene. The first time I saw it, I thought he just straight up died there. But yeah, Me they're, too. They're I was actually like, how long is he going to have to dig this guy out of here? It was <laughs> horrifying. And, and, and obviously building to that climactic shot of his, uh, the hands in the rubble actually, you know, like embracing. And it, it does have this like dirty, uh, you know, texture, but it's like, in, it's like the, one of the few, like openly romantic moments of the film of these bonding of like, here's the guy who knows his shit. And here he is grabbing his hand and pulling him out. He's like, I'm not letting this guy die. We're in this you know, we're in this together and here was the, he, and the, the guy's only in trouble because he's selflessly trying to help us out. Like, it's just, it's a really beautiful moment. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the other little melodramatic aspect of the movie that provides the whole fulcrum, like the emotional fulcrum of it is that is Gaspard, you know, the charges against him, uh, there's some ambiguity at first as to whether or not he's just got a convenient, like lying, like, Oh, he just, this guy tried to kill his wife. But we do figure out that, no, this guy is genuinely like he's a scumbag and he cheated on his wife. But yeah, he the as a matter of fact, his story is true and that the charges are going to be dropped. And at first he doesn't believe it. And he's like, oh, whatever. Who gives a shit? And then. Well, yeah, because because well, at first it's the sister in law, like the woman yeah. he actually slept with arrives to the prison and is like, hey. I think she'll drop the charges if I if like I go away to England for like a year and I can I can just wait for you and you know she'll drop the charges and you can get out and you know that's 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 all fine and maybe you won't be facing as like a bleak of charges as you think you are you know that kind of deal and yeah it's framed in that amazing bit like through the actual like prison like you know fencing bar there a little bit where he's just like yeah I don't I don't give a shit fuck you partially because I, and I do think partially because I, he does. I think he does feel a sense of camaraderie with these guys a little bit. There is that part when, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're breaking through with the, with the metal rods and it is actually the labor is bringing them closer together. And I think he looks at Manu or whatever. And he's like, you know, this is the first time in my life that I feel right. Like it is genuinely like, it is great being with you guys. And he totally means that he's like, there is a spiritual connection forming between these guys by you know being in the shit together and doing the work together and so the the images obviously have been generating that in the audience you share in this experience with them and uh yeah so i i i think it's cool that the first sign of temptation he kind of is like 
nah, you yeah. know, I don't, I don't, I don't believe you. And, um, you know, I'm going to go back to hanging out with the fellas, you yeah. know, that, that's his first cue. But then when he's brought in again later, it's a whole nother story. Yeah, no, the yeah. warden tells him like the warden says charges are going to be dropped. And then he looks nervous and the warden's like, you don't seem too happy about that. And then the scariest fade out in movie history. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then what? And then it it fucks with your head, too, because then he comes back and he gives an insanely plausible cover story, like something like, yes, you know, he gives a very, very plausible one. And he says, like, I was grilled. I like you guys. OK, I got fucking, you know, I got fucking grilled. I put myself out there for you all. I would never betray you. You all are my friends. And, yeah. you know, and you want to believe that him one, even in that moment. <laughs> yeah. You well, want to. Do you know him. what? Do you know what? I'll, I'll admit it. I believed him. I 100 percent. Yeah, I, I 100% I, I don't know if it was the performance or like well, it's like after the fact it seems so obvious Yeah, but in the moment a hundred percent in that scene I was like oh yeah that's totally believable because you know he, he has been having this sort of like friendly relationship with the warden so there's no reason that he's like uniquely snuggling up to him or anything like that it was just like a basic you know sort of uh a uh, jovial sort of relationship where yeah. like there's there's that scene obviously with the lighter there's one in the middle of the film where he mistakenly goes back to his old cell and not his new cell and he you know it, he explains that to the warden at one point too and the warden's like you know what you're a nice educated guy i actually like interacting with you in my prison and i've looked into your case and i think that you're gonna be okay and the charges are gonna be dropped and he, when he goes back to the cell he's like you know you know the, after two hours by the way too which is why they're so right. suspicious because they should be like absolutely yeah. but he was basically like look i actually don't think that he offered me that good of a deal and you know it was just you know like i i don't think that uh the charges are actually going to get dropped in as cleanly a fashion as he says and i yeah. don't think that the magistrate is going to be as you know uh you know friendly to me as he thinks that i am and i think he's wrong and i think i still serve a lot of years so i'm totally here with you and also he does just openly play the friend card yes. he's like i thought you guys were my friends and i was your friends i thought we achieved some kind of connection with one another through yeah. all of these things that we're doing which by the way i will say my favorite example of that connection is that one where uh, Geo and Roland eventually do make it through the sewer, which, which takes so many painstaking scenes of them ripping through that fucking concrete over and over again until they eventually make it into the sewer. They get up to a manhole, and it's one of my favorite moments in the whole film because, it, uh, first of all, the subterranean passages made me think of something like The Third Man, which yeah. is obviously something like where it's more imposing. It's like the, the sewers are going to swallow you. It's like you're, you know, you're you, it, through the intestines of the city. You're in a bleak place. When they open that manhole and they get the long shots of, um, you know, them poking their heads out. Mm -hmm. And it's just this beautiful moment of like, just observing the sounds, the diegetic sounds of the street. And it's like so beautiful. Look at this taxi going by at six in the morning. Look at the wind. Yeah. Oh my God. Like they're just, they're freaking out about this moment of freedom. And one of them jokingly suggests, hey, we should just hail that cab down. And we're it's good. Gaspard. Let's get out. Yeah. It's Gaspard who says, yeah. let's take and a taxi. And it's like, hmm. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, yeah. And, and, then, and then he goes, no, we have to go and tell the guys that we've made it. And we're all going to freedom. Like, again, it's this pure act of selflessness to be like, I could just jump out of the manhole right now. We've made it. Or 
I could go back and I could go tell them all. And I, it's an act of selflessness that does end up dooming him. But it's just, it's one of those things where, again, the instinct, even at the relief point, is to be like, I'm going to go back into hell in order yeah. to, you know, get this feeling for my friends as well. I think, you know? yeah, I really think Gaspard is a much more complicated character than he, especially initially, presents himself. Because even with the warden, he's got that reputation of like, oh, you're just a nice guy. You know, you're just a nice guy. But then there's, as these things go on, there's more complications. Like, even in that moment when he suggests to go into the taxi, that is a hint that, you know, of maybe what's to come from his character. But at the same time, he still does choose to go back with them and uh, and tell the, the prisoners about, you know, the progress that they've made. He easily could have hopped out real fast, jumped in the taxi and just fucking left. So there was something still in him that was like, OK, there's still a camaraderie here. There's friendship. Um, but I think it just, you know, it, it unfortunately... It, it weighs on him too much. Um, well, it, and, it, 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 well and, and, and it changes when he's offered a yes. personal convenience. And of, the thing... Yeah, maybe you don't have to serve as long of a sentence and maybe you don't need to escape at all. Yeah. Right? Because and, that's the only reason. That was why they first grilled him at the very beginning. Right. It was like, you're facing a long sentence. It's worth... The risk is worth it to you based on how yeah. much time you'll save by breaking out. But now and it's even, like, is he saving time by breaking out or should he just serve a year in solitary? And yes. his wife and, drops the charges or, you know, any anything like that. So and even the yeah, warden, that, the, that is what eventually motivates the final sequence of the film where they do suddenly get betrayed. And man, what a visual way to depict that. What happened. an ending, yeah. man. It's, it's so sudden and brutal how Just, like they they think they're in the middle of the escape. But they're all dressed under the blankets. They watch for the guards with the mirror. You know, they they think they're about to go down and go do it. And and again, the way that we did it with Wages of Fear, where there's a repetition to it, we've gone into that hole so many times, uh, the titular hole, that it's like, well, yeah, all they have to do is sink into the hole. And they're out the manhole. They're good. Like, your brain has already done the connecting for you, the logic of their thought process on how this would go down. And the fact that it's, like, disrupted, but they don't even get in it. Before yeah. they poke the little fucking mirror through the peephole to check on the guards, and, and there's no guards, no guards, and then they check it again. A hundred guards, guards just standing there watching them, <laughs> and, then, and that image is just so incredible when they so terrifying. Yeah, they and then just they rush them, they just storm them, and it's just sheer chaos for about a minute. Like they are just one of them tries to fucking just strangle Gaspard. And there's just like an outright yep. brawl with all of them happening. And then eventually all of a sudden they're they all strip all of their clothes, but let Gaspard stay dressed all fancy, which yeah. is one of my favorite details. Yeah, they <laughs> yeah. pin them up against the wall. It's silent and still again. And then um, what is it? Ro Roland just looks at looks at him and just says, poor Gaspard, as he walks away over to solitary. Um, and it's yeah. just yeah. one of the most. He has just, no friends. You've got no friends now. You've got, you know. Yep. There's nothing. Fake there. friends, baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you're you've you're getting out of here, but your soul is trapped forever. And yeah. it's yeah. it's such a grim and tragic and shocking ending for the movie. Because again, it's it kind of comes out of nowhere. I mean, it's obvious in hindsight, but like you think, oh, this is just a movie about escaping. This is this might as the, well the be. The movie totally fakes you out by showing you so much detailed process and getting you swept up in the process as a form of friendship and bonding yeah. and, you know, experience with another human being that turns you into a collective of, and you know, the warmth that kind of comes from something that is otherwise so cold. Yeah, the movie does so well at sweeping you up into that that when someone breaks that fabric 
of 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 what had been formed you're like dude why would you even do that and that's why that line does hit as hard as it does because it's like yeah you uh, you sold your soul and you have no friends and yeah. like ultimately did it not feel better hanging out with us like eating food together than you know like what it's going to feel like alone with your you know your wife that you don't even like you know <laughs> like it's just it's this weird yeah it's a uh, but it, man what an ending yeah yeah no it, and the uh i love to the warden coming up and it's the first time except for the very beginning that you see in which i do like that the warden comes off as as probably awful of a person as he actually is, and not just playing the game with uh, with Gaspard, um, just being this like you know I'm super cool man. You can trust me. I'm 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 a cool warden. You know, just tell me all the information. Tell me what's going on. Um, at the beginning of it, when he's introduced, he is incredibly cruel to one of the opening uh, inmates that we see. And then as soon as Gaspard enters in and he's, you know, he's got a kinder demeanor and whatever, he's very nice and cordial to him. And and, uh, and, and I think that's that initial hint of, like, this is really what the warden is going to be like. Uh, it's all a deception. Um, and then you slowly see Gaspard kind of, I wouldn't say trust him by any means, but not it, seemingly not he's 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 at least least a little more trustworthy towards the warden than the guards it seems for whatever reason by the end um and uh i just i loved the warden walking up and it's just like his cold eyes like i fucking got you <laughs> it's yeah. so uh it's just heartbreaking yeah no what a what a what a what a picture maybe if we are uh pivoting towards a uh, reductive rating round again on this one. Uh, this is, this is the rare first time uh, double watch double five for me. Uh, it, it, it happens occasionally. I feel like the last time this happened, it was Perry when he brought uh, the cremator and Verkmeister harmonies, I think was the last time that it was two films I hadn't seen before. And uh, yeah, but no, this was, this was, um this was a five for me. This was a huge surprise. Uh, Jacques Becker was someone I hadn't, I, you know, I had, I had this watch listed, but I didn't, I hadn't heard much about him. And now I'm like, why haven't I? And why haven't I seen more? Um, that's just, I think that's the, the logical response to the level of, uh, craft that's on display here. It's, this is like, this is totally gripping, methodical, uh, it's hypnotic, it's, uh, you know, textured and tactile. Like it's everything that you would want out of a, as, uh, Spencer has been pitching us here, a process thriller, um, but I was also surprised at like the amount of just like experimental documentary, uh, flourishes that it almost has to it as well by being so rigorous and authentic with its depiction of labor and the bonding and the level of effort and feeling you get out of labor when you're trying to achieve a goal that you are aligned with other people in, in, in doing. And so it's one of those things where it, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense that you feel so much for the friendships in this film and the eventual betrayals in this film when you describe it to someone as probably like 75% someone with an object in their hand, like breaking a piece of steel or concrete <laughs> yeah. like that genuinely that is like probably most of what you witness in this movie. And it's incredible that despite that this is, this does have a, you know, a humanity and a warmth, um, to it that is uh you know eventually bleakly betrayed but man i liked the scenes of these guys just hanging out in the prison just like figuring out what it is they're gonna do figuring out how uh, just watching a guy grab sand and being like why the fuck are you grabbing sand dude and then <laughs> this big smile on his face when he actually shows you why and it's ingenious he's gonna take these these elements from 
the guy who was giving medicine and turn it into an hourglass. And then they're going to measure how much time the hourglass actually gives them. Then they're going to take the hourglass down with them into the tunnels. And then they can mark the hours with X's as they're doing their work and make it back up in time before the guards look through the peephole in the morning. And it's just like to fit all of that information in as actually tight of a context as this ends up doing and getting you psychologically involved in that as an audience member by, you know, it, it, it takes a lot of careful, meticulous craft to do that. And, uh, Becker really pulls it off. And the only sad thing about watching this movie for me was I was going, man, it's, it, it, you know, this came at the very end of his career. And yeah. uh, I do think if he had maybe got a claim from this and was able to make more films in this vein or more films that he wanted to make that he may have, you know, might have taken off more. But also I'm speaking a little bit from a place of ignorance. So I'm going to go back to his commercial 50 stuff and see if, you know, there's there's more in there as well. So but yeah, this was like, a, you know, uh, the, the, someone showing me a movie. Thank you, Spencer. I love <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, this was I mean, I think this is incredible. Um I think I am going to give it the the old uh, Jamie four TM the classic rating here, just wow. because I wanted the. Re- I have a reason though, because next week we're doing. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I was. I was. I, if I could have, I would have thrown the like boo. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, and I understand soundtrack. it. To be honest, I'm kind you of know, booing you know. myself right now. And if you want to put the five on the old Sleezoids podcast letterbox, you're, you're more than welcome to do it. Because um, I do feel like this <laughs> is going to get there. Well, for me, I just wanted to watch. Um, uh, years ago, I saw A Man Escaped uh, for the first time, and at, uh, it, just for obvious reasons, I was very much thinking about that the entire time. And since we're covering it next week, I just really want to watch it again and just kind of compare a little bit and see if I feel that both are 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 in that realm. But I mean, this is it's an incredible movie. I'm not taking anything away from it. I think just the the emphasis of the procedure is in- incredible. Um, there's, it's gotta be like probably one of my, uh, top 10, at least, uh, favorite now procedural films, just because it, it never stops focusing on it. It is literally every single small detail is, is shown on camera, whether you think it'd be, um, pointless to show or not. It, and what you realize too, just as the, the steps, um, progress and they they get deeper and deeper into the tunnel every small detail is important from just breaking up a small mirror and putting it in your mouth for a second while the guards um are are looking over your room so that you can turn it into a a mirror and watch as all the activity is going on and um taking out like a, a bed a piece of your metal bed frame so that you can use it as a thing to whack the cement with and then putting it back like it's just all, all these small details add up to an unbelievable uh, suspense thriller. And uh, like you were saying, too, it's like 75% of the procedure. Um, and so you wouldn't think that you get a lot out of the, the, the relationship stuff. But I think, you know, emphasizing the work that they're putting in just makes those betrayals so much more impactful because you've you've watched them go through all of this before it finally happens. Um, so it, it really yeah, does. I mean, Gio was willing to break his arms for hours and hours and hours. He was willing to suffocate himself. Yes. Yeah, for, for no personal gain. Just for Claude to and fuck that is, it all up. 
Yep, and I, I I read Andrew Saris's review of this too, and it uh, he was like when he compared it to A Man Escaped, he was saying that this is not a, this one's not a prison escape movie about liberty; it's about fraternity. And I think that that <laughs> actually clarified the entire thing for me when I was like, man, like you just like Geo is the guy. I'd want that guy on my side. He has honor. Yeah, you yeah. know, and it's it's just it, it, it's crazy to to see to like actually the, the movie does trick you. I think Spencer was right. The movie tricks you into watching it in a different way, but that is. Yeah. ultimately the feeling you get out of it which is amazing so, yeah no but, yeah uh, yeah for uh, for you spencer i also do love how geo is constantly just going like is your wife good at sex is your wife good at sex is your is your, is your mistress better yeah. <laughs> is she a blonde brunette did you give sloppy how's the pussy yeah. bro <laughs> do it be squirting do it be farting <laughs> um <laughs> the boy yeah no uh anyways no i mean obvious easy five for me like jesus christ this is like a top four top five of all time movie for me this was i mean this is like the single best like new discovery maybe like the single best first watch i've ever had in my life when i saw this during covid like i was just like i don't think i've ever liked a movie as much on first watch as i've this one since even my other favorites like they took me a couple of watches to get like there get there with but this one Mm -hmm. i was almost immediately like oh this is just like the best fucking thing i've ever seen in my entire life um no i adore this movie to death i mean i'm pretty sure we touched on all of it again i do want to shout out the scenes underneath so black so inky so like night of the hunter-esque like it's the best shadowy noir look you've ever seen in your life the scenes in the prison cell too, like the gray looks so it doesn't feel like a black and white film. It looks like a monotone gray film and it (laughs) looks so wonderful. Like despite that there's all this like careful shots of like all the characters heads and faces together that look like a proto high and low shot. Like it's, it's every single aspect is just masterfully constructed in a way that very often doesn't really call attention to itself just because of how, you know, how process driven it is. You're just thinking the whole time, like, man, they're really digging the shit out of this concrete. And then at the end, <laughs> you get kicked in the head by like, oh, this had this secret, raw, almost spiritual undercurrent to it. And it just saved it for the yeah. last moment. No, I yeah, mean, it's basically yeah. everything. Uh, this I guy doesn't with. have friends. That's yeah. the message of the movie. Ultimately, yeah, no, but, but it, there's a there, there's a there's a there's a, a raw purity of harsh labor to get you to that point. It's amazing. I don't think I've seen yeah. anything else like it, honestly, in that way. Yeah, no, yeah. it's it's you got to watch this like everyone listening to this now. You got to fucking see this. This is an incredible movie. Yeah, the and the last thing I wanted to mention too was um, just how they use sound in that final five minutes is incredible because all the prisoners, like you can't see them, they're not really rea- like you can't see the actual reactions, but they're all like making an an insane amount of noise and and like beating on their cells and all of that. And then as soon as he closes the door to the solitary confinement, everything kind of goes silent, and you just see the hallway get emptier and emptier until it's just two guards, and it's just like the adventure's over the friendship's over the relationship you just saw develop is over uh and and that's it <laughs> they're back to square one essentially so yeah it's 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 it is really really good amazing movie yeah i i also have to wonder too a little bit of i'm gonna f- read some more about jacques becker but i'm i'm, I'm curious about the idea that the it's the very polite wealthy guy 
who is the guy who does everyone in in this when <laughs> just knowing the background that he came from like this is a yeah. guy who you know went sports car driving with Jean Renoir as like a 20 year old or something you know like it's like it, 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 I was curious uh, if that was you know he felt ostracized in, in prison by being next to like more working class guys or something it's I, I have to either way the, 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 the end result of all of this is I'm going to go down the uh, Jacques Becker rabbit hole and I think everyone yeah. else should too starting with uh, the whole go check it out as as Spencer said but uh, yeah that is uh, I think going to wrap it up for this week's episode that was the wages of fear from 1953 and the whole from 1960 uh, what 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 great titles too I forgot to mention yeah. the wages of fear such a great title and also the whole uh, they, they, they all have like nice little uh, uh, double entendres going on ed, existentially and uh, with also just literally uh, in you know the, <laughs> the yeah. wages of fears I, I didn't realize un- until I watched it actually that it's literally about like the working wages like it's not like you know like the betting wages or you know but anyway um, Spencer this is the part of the show where we uh, have people do their plugs if you got anything going on what's going on in uh, those good old fashioned values world uh, yeah so I got two podcasts for you to check out the first one that you might have heard or listened to I occasionally see it pop up in the Sleezoids discord sometimes is uh, get cynical this is one I do with a uh, fellow Sleezoids guest and Twitter person Esther Rosenfield we really kind of comb through and dig up internet detritus from that's been forgotten. We have done a season-long ret- long retrospectives on the careers of forgotten YouTubers, Max Landis, Doug Walker, <laughs> John Green, and we are about to start one on the rise and fall of Cracked.com. So that Let's one's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, no, we have a lot of fun. I also have a comedy podcast called Those Good Old Fashioned Values, the show that started out as a Family Guy review podcast, but then we all had a psychotic break and decided we didn't want to do that anymore. So now (laughs) it is a comedy podcast slash variety show where we alternate. We sometimes review movies like we had Josh on to talk about cop. Sometimes we force our friends to read fan fiction with us, which is a lot of fun. Sometimes we go for more high concept episodes. We had a really fun episode with uh, Alex Nichols, Lowen Ofchin, where we made a fake true crime podcast episode. That was a lot of fun to put together. And yeah, if you are into comedy at all, and if you're into media analysis, that's a lot less smart than this. Like imagine like (laughs) three people who all recently sustained a head injury, trying to talk about a movie and getting derailed. (laughs) Uh, That's, that's going to be your jam. We, 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 reviewed oh brother where art thou and we spent about like 15 minutes just talking about how weird john goodman looks now that he's skinny so (laughs) please please you know go check those out content that's awesome yeah no yeah Go, go, go check both of them (laughs) out for sure. Uh, For our listeners, we are going to be back in one week's time where, uh, as Jamie already kind of mentioned, uh, and and we had set Mm. up actually as the episode we intended to do before this episode at one point, but due to some scheduling things, we had to make it the episode after. Um, uh, We're going to be doing an episode for any, I mean, good news for anyone who liked the whole when you eventually watch the whole. (laughs) We're going to be talking about like basically the exact intersection of the two things that it's doing. We are going to be doing a double feature of uh, 
uh, the minimalist procedural black and white 50s French part with Robert Bresson's A Man Escaped, uh, where we are finally going to be talking about that film and doing more of the, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the more spiritual, more abstract version of a similar sort of prison escape situation. And then we're going to be seeing that uh, the the more uh, gritty procedural style here translated into a uh, uh, American 70s context where we are going to be talking about Clint Eastwood and longtime collaborator Don Siegel doing Escape from Alcatraz, which uh, actually was a watch that Jamie and I did together. And yeah. when we watched that, we were both kind of like, man, that's we got to pair that with a man escaped at some point. So Spencer just kind of set us up for that episode. And we were like, either way, the week before or after his episode, we're definitely doing this. So, yeah, next week, uh, I, I'm realizing that I love prison movies or oh, prison escape too. movies. I'm not. Uh, yeah, I'm just going <laughs> to Jamie and I are going to have to go to jail for something. We'll, f- yeah. we'll figure that out later. Um, <laughs> but uh but yeah next week a man escaped and a escape from alcatraz over on the patreon and then in two weeks time i'm still not sure actually what we're doing yet we're still trying to lock it down but i i should just do another prisoner escape movie so we can become masters yeah maybe we'll do that too we'll just a whole month of prison escape (laughs) movies uh we'll we'll see i have been looking at the uh, old tiff lineups because i know that tiff is about to start in two weeks and i was thinking maybe we could do something from like the midnight program from like the 90s or something like that yeah Uh, um, but, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see two weeks from now. We're going to do a good episode on the main feed, but I'm not sure what it is yet. So stay tuned. Um, but yeah, that being said, that wraps it up for everything this week. Thanks so much for listening and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy.